I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with bank robberies. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, with violent crime. Why'd you, why, why, was, why did this particular squad interest you so much? It was the time, you know, it was a time, I guess, in history, you know, that D.C., when I say D.C., was out of control. Um, the crack epidemic hit like between 1986 and, and 87. Um, I think, you know, actually because of Murph and, and, you know, DEA's activities done in Colombia, you know, there was a there was um in the early 80s, actually, cocaine use in, in the U.S. was going down, you know, and there was in the, the co- there was a high supply, lower demand. The introduction of crack, I mean, you know, I think that's a fascinating story in and of itself, you know, other than the false narratives are out there that the CIA or the U.S. government, you know, it's a bunch of BS. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, dude, dudettes, and everybody, regardless of where you fall into that spectrum, welcome back. This is Game of Crimes. I am Morgan Wright, the guy with the hair, the guy with the Tommy Bahama, here literally with my partner in crime, the free t-shirt man. Ah, Murph. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You actually paid for the shirt you're wearing today. That, I'm, I'm proud of you. I did. It's the West Virginia shirt. On the back of it, it says Mountaineers. See, there I thought it, it said Go Ears. No, that's that's your cheer when you're in the ball game. Oh, go ears! Yeah. How about them ears? How about them ears? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I don't even want. Oh, anyway, welcome back. <laughs> I don't know where to. It's go. not E A R S. It's E E R S. You got. Well, that's because you guys game. don't know how to spell. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently you don't know how to spell mountaineers. <laughs> well, if it's ears, it's E A R S. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> There's your first drinking game. All right, welcome back, guys. To game of crimes. Thank you for joining us. The uh, script says I'm supposed to do housekeeping, so that's what we shall do real quick. All right. Go over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, single stars. Uh, it helps us out a lot. And guys, we, we've really seen some traction, so we really appreciate everything that you're doing for us on that. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We have a couple guests coming up. One of them, it's going to take a whole nother page to list all his books. We just did that episode yesterday. Oh but, if you're, but if you're into understanding about serial killers and how to hunt serial killers using some very modern technology, that's going to be for you. But anyway, that'll be over there, uh, our mailing list, our merch. Also, follow us on this thing they call the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But Murph, I can say this three times real fast, where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. <laughs> Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Hey, come on over to Patreon and check us out there. I mean, you hear us say this every week when we come on, but we're serious. I mean, there's some fantastic content on there. There's uh, some serious stuff. There's a lot of funny stuff. We've got, you can't make this shit up. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, it, I'm just shocked at all the stuff we do. And we do a monthly Q&A where you can ask us the questions. And we have yet to turn down a single question. So it's it's a lot of fun. There's some serious questions in there, but we'll give you our honest opinions about things. And as you know, if people ask us about dirty cops, we'll be the first to tell you nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. We'll toss them under the jail for you. By the way, too, as we're recording this, it is the the 25th of August in the year of our Lord, 2022, and episode four of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition, just came out. And I'm telling you, episode four, shit starts getting real. 
You got to go over there and see what Chris Feistel, Dave, Dave Mitchell do, because I'm telling you, not only is it fun, but just Chris's encyclopedic knowledge of everything. And then Dave's just good old boy. Hey, wait till you hear the stories about how they use the threat of bringing in the 82nd Airborne to, to, to put. <laughs> you do what you got to do. Yeah. What a great story. But hey, guys, you got to go over there, like you said, and we've got some more good stuff coming out. So that is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Also, uh, if you just want to do a pause for the cause, go over to paypal.com, use our email, gamacrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gamacrimes, whatever. It makes it easier for you to support the show, and uh, we, we want to bring you more exciting content, invest in more equipment, and actually, this would uh, help us invest in a couple trips. We're still working on a very big one. We hope to hear something back on that. If so, we shall be flying across the United States to go to the West Coast to do something to boldly go where no man has gone before. Well, and, and actually, that's what I said right before my colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we pull this one off, it, it will be. This is this is going to be a coup if we can pull it yeah. off. So we shall we shall find that out. But anyway, folks, as you probably have figured out already, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take these stories seriously, but uh, you're going to see we never take ourselves seriously. We're going to have a lot of fun on the show. So if we're going to have fun, we got to get through according to the script. I have to ask you, Murph, what time is it? I'll bet it's time for Small, Small Town Police, Police Blotter. And guess what? We have something. This is, uh, I don't want to say this is a watershed moment, but this is pretty cool. All three stories came mm -hmm. to us courtesy from the Game of Crimes fan page fan group, I should say, run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. So all three stories today came from folks that posted it on the fan page, on the Sweet. fan group, I should say. Yeah. This, is on, this is on Facebook, everybody. This is on Facebook. So you guys got to go to Game of Crimes fans. Just look for that. It's a group. It's not the page. We have a public page, but this is a group. Run. You got to answer a couple easy questions. You'll get in. And when you get in, you're going to hear stories like this, Steve. I think I've heard this one. My wife might have told me about this one. <laughs> Well, you don't even know which one it is yet. Yeah, but I got. I haven't read it, but I got a feeling I know what's coming. Well, we'll see. We'll okay. see. Uh, to, the first two stories are Florida, so I'll, I'll give you that yeah. one. Uh, right. <laughs> it is not unusual, right, for police to chase somebody, right? Right. I mean, we do it all the time, right? This happened down in Oskaloosa County, Florida. So, according to the Oskaloosa County Sheriff's Office, how'd you like to say that when you're trying to do a raid? Knock, knock, knock. Oskaloosa County. Oskaloosa. <laughs> God damn it. Sheriff's <laughs> Office. All right. Police. <laughs> Police. According to the Sheriff's Office, Dustin Mobley had previously fled deputies in Holt back on January 3rd by diving into a swamp along the Yellow River after he was confronted about a $40,000 stolen boat. They say uh, the Sheriff's Officer's so Mobley was on the boat when deputies arrived, and then he dove off to avoid going to jail. What he did, Steve, he used heavy machinery, cutting a hole in a metal building to steal the vessel from a business off a of Highway 4 in Baker back in January. But now, during this chase, here's the question. How would police be able to successfully tase Mobley as he's making his getaway? How would they tase him if they're in pursuit? Shoot the water. No, he was riding a lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, how you can taste in? somebody who's in pursuit. You just walk up and go, dude, get off the... Th no, no, okay. Yep. <laughs> I thought he dove in the water. No, that was, and that's what caused them to come after him the second time. So oh. his first offense was stealing the boat, uh -huh. diving in the water. But then when they went to go arrest him for that, uh, he tried to escape <laughs> them on a lawnmower. He got tased. And according to them, this is going to shock you, Steve. He had a revolver, a handcuff key in his possession, 
and a meth pipe. Well, Dustin, he's ready. I, I mean, he's he's going to party. What do we say, kids? <laughs> Don't do meth. This is why. All right. I so that one. The, I hope they got him. You know, riding the lightning bolt there on video. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta watch those. It's fun. Well, I'm mean, trying to get away on a lawnmower. You can run. You don't need a car. You can run along the lawnmower and zap the guy. Zap the guy. So Bill Turpin. That one came from Bill Turpin. So Bill Turpin, thank you. This next one comes thank to us from Carolina. Carolina. Carolina Nunez Pacheco. Carolina, I can't even talk this morning. Carolina <laughs> Nunez Pacheco. So another Florida woman. Another Florida person. This time it's a Florida woman. Guess what? A Florida woman is accused of causing a disturbance in a grocery store parking lot while wielding a pitchfork and a whip during a rainstorm. Uh, We're going to have some fun tonight, honey. <laughs> Lisa Ann Sloan, 56, of Okoe. Okoe? O-C-O-E-E? O-C-O-E. Okay. Something like that. Yeah, wherever she's from. Was arrested Tuesday, charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon without intent to kill. Uh, dash cam video from a Florida Highway Patrol trooper shows Stone in the parking lot of a Publix in Claymont around 2.12 p.m. She can be seen pointing her whip at the patrol car before walking away. She shortly walked back to the parking, parking lot, pointed her pitchfork at the trooper. And then, uh, according to the FHP trooper who disarmed Stone, she refused to be handcuffed after taking her to the ground. Uh, she was placed into the cruiser. The cruiser, the trooper said while he spoke with the manager who Sloan was attempting to sell teddy bears to behind the store. She then ran around the parking lot and stabbed a minivan in the parking lot, which the pitchfork, she, <laughs> according to the dash cam, she tells the trooper, God is great, God is in control. Afterwards, she was able to unbuckle her seatbelt, kicked at the right door window of the cruiser, uh, and that she appeared to be highly intoxicated on some sort of stimulant drug, but did not appear to be under the influence of alcohol. I would guess it was meth. <laughs> so I wonder how she, you know, when she pointed that whip at the trooper when he first got there, was that seductively like, hey, big boy, look what I got for you? <laughs> I, and then, I, you know what, I guess you can't, you know, if she if she attacked you with a pitchfork, I mean, that's you've got all the authority in the world right there to take her out with your weapon. She just pointed the pitchfork at him, but it's kind of hard to take. I mean, you got to take this stuff well, seriously. She, she stabbed that minivan, but you can't shoot somebody for stabbing a minivan. You know, so. Well, I don't, I don't know. If, if you stab my vehicle, that could be close to my new Kia. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Hats off to the Florida Trooper for just doing your job and not getting stuck. And that's one of those things when you go to a conference and everybody goes, no shit, there I was, <laughs> facing down a lady armed with a pitchfork. What's the, uh, 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 oh, what's the lady that, um, you know, has the seductive outfit, um, Elvira? Elvira, yeah. Maybe that's the new age Elvira. I, hey, look, if it was Elvira, I would have said, okay, come on, bring it on. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, we move on. Dominique Balsoma. Now, she works, uh, she sends us some good stuff. Uh, she she works up in Maryland. And so there's this little website, um, and they, they, they listen to the scanner, and they kind of report out. So this is something that was reported out not too long ago, Steve. This happened mm -hmm. in Salisbury, Maryland. Oh. So... Salisbury, Maryland, responding to uh, Tamarack Drive in, ref in reference to a drug dealer at a residence to collect money from a user. Well, there you go. That's the reason to call 911. The caller stated they have owed the drug dealer money for a few months, and the drug dealer is now at the residence to collect. No shock there. Update, 6.40 p.m. The caller has called back and stated the dealer is now attempting to break into his residence. Update, 7.04 p.m. The story continues to grow as we continue to shake our heads. The caller advised police that he was kidnapped earlier by the dealer, and now the dealer has stolen his vehicle. So, for those of you scratching your heads, this is not a joke. They didn't make this up. This is really happening right now. So, 
Was there no law enforcement response from the first couple calls? Well, you know, that's a good question. Apparently not. I mean, somebody stupid enough to call in and say, hey, look, I haven't paid a drug dealer. I owe him money. Um, and now he's stealing my car. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, hey, they could be tied up with uh, somebody armed with a pitchfork and a whip. You know, <laughs> 10 you don't know. No, no units available. Sorry. We'll get to you uh, again. Calls are backing up. Anyway, so <laughs> anyway, so, hey, there we go, guys. Thank you, guys. This is from our Game of Crimes fan group. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just just go search that. Uh, Sandy Salvato will grant you admission if you can just even barely answer a couple questions. Just even get in the ballpark. Just take a good old college try. Hey, she let me in. I mean, you know, if I'm in there, everybody should be able to get in. Damn Skippy. I remember when I first joined the group, I was saying something. She goes, who are you? I said, well, I'm one of the podcast hosts. She goes, oh! <laughs> Hey, everyone's not afraid. <laughs> your ass. That's right. All right. Well, hey, speaking of, uh, I, I don't know how to transition into this one, but this next guy, uh, you actually were able to to find for us. And this one, I'm telling you, this story, this is a longer, this be a longer episode, even though it's a two-parter. This story is one of the most compelling stories I've heard. And uh, the guy, John uh, Kufta, it's not Kuchta or Kukta, but Kufta, um, I mean, Steve, just uh, I, I don't know what to say other than his way he was able to articulate it, the stuff he went through. Um, but you could tell this affected him. Yeah. And shout out to Jaime Camacho, retired DE agent in uh, South Florida for making this introduction. Um, and I talked to John some time ago and, uh, you know, just I'm getting old and forgetful. And so Jaime called me again and said, hey, the, you know, uh, give us a guy a call. John is a retired FBI agent. And you may remember this. Back in the early 1990s, a gunman went into the Washington, D.C. police headquarters and shot and killed several police officers. Uh, It was one sergeant with D.C. Metro Police and two FBI agents. And then a third FBI agent was shot but survived. That's John Kufta. I I don't want to get too far in the story because you're going to hear his story. I mean, it's it's you're going to hear some emotion in this story. You're going to hear how proud we are of his actions and and, and our sympathies uh, towards him for what he had to go through. But John got shot in the heart. He's the first person I've ever heard of that got shot in the heart and survived. His story's compelling. He hasn't let him get it down. Get him down. He uh, continued on as a successful FBI agent for the rest of his career. He's now doing some private industry work. Turns out we're uh, probably within an hour of each other. So we're eventually here going to get to meet in person and, and share a cup of coffee. Um, but today is a story about hero- heroism. And another individual who didn't let his circumstances get him down. Just so proud of what you're getting ready to hear today. Yeah. So this happened November 22nd, 1994. And we dedicate this episode in memory of uh, the three folks who died. Sergeant Hank Daly, 51, of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department, and FBI Special Agents Michael Miller and Martha Dixon Martinez. So um, you're, you're going to hear a great story. Um, and so, Murph, uh, I got to ask you one question, though, if we want to hear the story. Um, and this truly is uh, one of the biggest, baddest, most dangerous games of all. I mean, this if this doesn't tell you about how dangerous it can be to do this work, nothing else will. So are you ready to play that most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Hey, everyone, truly get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. This is a story. Bring on John. Like clicks, man, you know? 
I can't see. I can't see without well, him. You know what I mean? But oh, I'm I know. This part out, Murph. I'm sorry. He's got, he's he's got, got a pair of pull-apart glasses, <laughs> magnetic at the front, trying to wear a head thing, and he's trying to figure out how do I put this. By the way, as you can tell, uh, I'm used to taking them on off all day, man. Yeah. John Kufta. Yes. Uh, is actually a former FBI agent. That's why he needs so much help from us. <laughs> Welcome to the show, John. Good I'm to just, be here, gentlemen. Uh, I was looking as we were preparing. He needed to go get something to drink, and I think instead of coffee, he came back with a Bloody Mary. <laughs> it's Florida. And he was wearing a good shirt, too, and he's like, well, screw this. Since we're not recording video, I'm taking off my shirt. So he's back to his thong and white T-shirt. There he's ready go. to go to the beach. There you go. That's hey, a well, sight you do not want to see, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> well, let's officially welcome because some people – you had a quick story about this, but some people look at your name and they'll think it sounds like Kuchita, but it's Kufta. Did I pronounce that right? Kufta? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's you, you had a quick story behind that, uh, John. No, no, it's well, just Slovak. I mean it's it's pretty much – my entire life, you know, it's it's pretty much been butchered, you know, and, and every time we moved to a city, we'd do like a family vote. Hey, should we start saying it phonetically like Kuchta or Kuchta or whatever? And, you know, the kids, everybody all voted. No, we're, you know, we're Kufta, so we're going to stick with it. But that's, you know, that's what my dad said, how it was pronounced. And, you know, he's second generation uh, in this country. And I went on, um, we did our last four or five years in the U.S. Embassy in London. It was my last one of my last postings, but went over. Yeah. Nice, man. And we went <laughs> over to, um, uh, Bratislava and, uh, you know, I pulled out my Florida driver's license and I, I showed the tour guide that was taking us like on a walking tour of Bratislava. And I'm like, how do you sell my, say my name? And she's like, Oh, it's Kofta, you know? So I'm like, okay, I guess we've been saying it right all these years. My, peop- my people, yeah. <laughs> my people, they say, right. Paula CH is an F, but, or like, uh, like Kofta or something, you know? Back in the day when I was a Salina, Kansas PD cop, we had a guy named Harvey Kuchka, yeah. K-U-C-H-K-A. And uh, I, I, I think he pronounced it differently, but after a while, I was like, well, you're a bunch of Kansas farm boys. Sorry, dude. Your yeah. name's Kuchka. So that's, yeah. that's what we're going to yeah. say. So yeah, it's anglicized over the years. Well, first of all, welcome. Um, you folks will find out his story, but it, it's an amazing story. But before we get started, as we do with everybody, this thing of ours, how did you get started in this thing of ours we called law enforcement? What the hell possessed you to uh, leave the cushy life of being at the embassy in London and living the life of a you know diplomat, you know family, and and join law enforcement? Oh no, that was at the very end of my career as an FBI assignment. But I um, oh okay, well yeah yeah yeah. No, so the, you did was, have uh, a assignment, okay? Yeah, I was an ALAT oh, yeah. at the very towards the very end. I was the ALAT in uh, London. Okay, which, uh, uh, we also have another rule, John: no yeah. acronyms. You okay, do something you assistant have to define legal it. attaché for the criminal programs out there. So I was like the criminal attaché to British police, um, you know, Scotland Yard, and uh, it was it was a good time. It was a uh, it was a good experience. In fact, we had a we had a uh, a very good friend, common friend, yeah. DEA, Kurt. Kurt. Yeah, Kurt yeah, Fallon. we worked worked a lot together. Yeah, actually, one of our episodes we had, or two of my friends that were detective constables on the counterterrorism command at New Scotland oh, yeah. Yard, we did the whole episode around the London train bombing. Sure. That they work. So, yeah, no, great, great folks over there. Uh, Alan Thomas, Graham Burridge, both officially retired after their official retirement. So, congratulations. But anyway, let's, I digress. Uh, let's get back to regularly scheduled podcast for our drinking game. That's, uh, That's digression number drink. one. <laughs> so Take I started drink. out. Yep. So I started. Uh, I guess I saw too many cop shows as a kid. I always wanted to be in law enforcement my entire Did life. Did you watch and, you Miami know, Vice? Yes, but that was like. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was. I was probably like. Uh, that was that was like probably college years, right? You know, 
Actually, we wouldn't go out to the clubs until, you know, Miami Vice was over. That was like kind of where you'd <laughs> sit around and drink a case of beer with your buddies, and then you go out because you didn't want to hey, pay for drinks at the club, you know? Do you guys but, remember uh, Hill Street Blues? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man, I love that show. That's one of the best ever Let's saw. be careful. Yeah, let's be careful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hawaii Five-0, I mean, all that. I watched, that's what I grew up on, a steady diet of that stuff. And, you know, as a kid, and I always was involved in law enforcement. Um, no law enforcement family. My good friend, his dad was a county uh, uh, police lieutenant. And, you know, he's kind of like the guy I was looked up to in the neighborhood. I never was involved in firearms or anything like that. Wasn't from a hunting family, you know, nothing like that. So, I mean, actually the first time I really, other than when Mr. McGrath down the street took us out once when we were kids to like to the range, you know, one time, I mean, I never, you know, had a firearm, never carried a gun, anything. Um, so I, I, my family background, I was the first generation to go to college. My dad, you know, got a GED, was in the Navy, a corpsman in the, in the Navy during World War II, never finished high school. And I kind of, my thing was personally, I wanted to reach the highest education level I could. And I, I wanted to be in law enforcement. And I looked at the FBI as, you know, the premier law enforcement agency. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, kind of swung for the fences on that. And I, I went to law school. Because I and I went to night law school. I churned it out working full time during the day and went to law school at night. And I went to law school mainly because I, you know, I, I wanted to be an FBI agent at the end. Well, of hold it. on, don't don't gloss over that too much. Uh, what were you working at during the day full time and going to law school at night? What were you doing? So after I, I worked at uh, automatic data processing, and I was they had although that's a payroll company, they had a a service where they did unemployment hearing compensation. Uh, uh, cases like in Pennsylvania, you didn't have to be an attorney to represent employers at these unemployment hearings. So you, you know, you use the role of ev- they were administrative hearings in front of an administrative judge. You uh, used the role of evidence. You raised objections. You know, you wrote briefs and you wrote appeals to the board of review. But like I'd go all over the tri-state area, uh, Ohio. West uh, West Virginia had to be an attorney, but Ohio and Pennsylvania and throughout you know Western Pennsylvania, all the way up to Erie, PA, and hours away. Um, and I'd try unemployment cases, um, you know, for like willful misconduct if somebody you know was terminated for you know some type of cause theft or you know sleeping on the job or whatever, you know. So you'd have to bring in witnesses and and you know take testimony and cross examine. So you were basically like, a trial lawyer. Yeah, yeah, for in law school, yeah. So I did that, and then I went to Travelers Insurance Company as in in their legal department, and finally the Federal Public Defender. My last year um, as an investigator. Yeah, Yeah, I got to call time. You are glossing. (laughs) You're just like. No, 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 no. This is good. You're glossing. We're going to have some fun with this. Yeah, we got to slow down. I can, I can, yeah. If you want me to slow it down, that's fine. I got all all time for you guys. We want to roll back to college. Where'd you go to college at? Yeah. University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, I grew up born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to University of Pittsburgh. Then after graduating from Pitt, I worked, got a job working full time, you know, ADP. And then I went to uh, law school at night at Duquesne University School of Law. Um, I've got to. I've got to just insert one thing right here. I yeah. have to apologize to all the West Virginia Mountaineer fans that we're having a pit grad here on the show. 
uh, beat Pitt. That's all I can say. That's what our shirts say. And you know, the first, so coming up football season this year, the first game of the year yeah. between is West Virginia versus Pitt. And how I'm many so years? I'm so glad Ten that years? rivalry's back, man. The I know. It's, fa- it's fantastic. So yeah. I went there once here. in my life, once in my career. And I said, never in my college career. And I said, never go back to West Virginia for a football game. <laughs> so the reason I asked that is right when we got started, we're setting things up and you're setting it up. You brought your towel out to put beneath. Yes. Your laptop. And what kind of towel was that? That was a uh, terrible towel for the Pittsburgh Steelers, my my terrible towel. So if anybody wondered if he's committed to Pitt or Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Still Pittsburgh through and through, even though I haven't lived there for many, many years. Yeah. It's kind of hard to get at. So, but what did you major in in college? Uh, poli sci. And then there was like a minor legal studies. So it's political science. You know, what do you do with a political science degree? But um go to law school but i there was two ways into the fbi and it was um you could either there was two sure ways to get in it's a lot different now or a lawyer accountant or a lawyer and i couldn't do math um <laughs> so, <laughs> so i went to law school i mean that's, I mean, that's fingers in a hole up here john yeah, uh, that's a trick question there's only four fingers or there's eight fingers and two opposable thumbs technically so but um but but while you're going through college when you went to college, was that your goal? When you went to college, I'm joining the FBI. Was that your? Was that it your was goal? law enforcement. I, I probably would. I at the time, you know, I came out. You know, okay. So when I went to college, it's the early '80s. The mills are shutting down. Pittsburgh is dying. It back then, you know, what I mean, it was a manufacturing base. People are getting laid off, and I, I wanted to be a detective. I, I wanted to be a Pittsburgh city detective. Like in, I think probably the where I was reaching for is being a homicide detective because that would be, you know, like the thing to be. And then, um, and there's a time period, like when the war on drugs came, you know, like crack hits the street in 86, I'm in law school. I started thinking, Hey, DEA is where to go, honestly. And then I met my wife in law school and she's like, you're not going to DEA. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was a short lived, short lived dream, you know, Why she but, didn't like DEA or she just didn't want to move or be around dope she, or what was it? Funny, mm. but she thought DEA was way too dangerous, you know? So, uh, so Go she's figure, establishing right? her dominance in this relationship immediately. You got to admire that lady. So no, so it was easy to get. I mean, it was really hard to get into a police department back then. Um, you know, one, the the cities were, you know, the tax base was leaving, and and uh, you know, you just it it was, you know, I took a bunch of tests when I got out, and then I um, you know, couldn't land anything. So you, if you didn't have a veteran preference or whatever. Yeah, you, you weren't getting hard. So, um, yeah, so I, I, you know, went to law school, said, hey, I, 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 talked to, I talked to a recruiter after, you know, when I graduated. And there's actually, I thought it was a, probably one of the, some of the best advice they gave me. And it actually goes to, like, why the FBI is so different now, I think, but from when I joined. But um, it was with the CIA. And, you know, I spent probably an hour interview with the CIA and he's like, look, John, we can hire you, right? And, you know, we can put you down in Washington and you'd probably be, you know, successful, you know, working for us, you know, probably starting in an analytical role. And then, but he's like, you're, you're not an Intel guy. You're, you're, you're law enforcement. He's like, go for the bureau. You know, he's, he was, and that really ended up being the best piece of advice. Cause I think there's definitely a difference between how the Intel, I mean, I know that, you know, working overseas and, and working in law enforcement all these years, but Intel thinks differently. 
you know, that, you know, intelligence gathering and, and works a lot differently than you know, that was just a, criminal a nice way of saying, look, we need intelligent people in Tintel. We need brawn over in the enforcement side. And it's the same way with us. The Intel folks are the smart ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm oh. not sure about that. I mean, I think we, we had, I think, you, you know, that's probably what's lacking now is this focus on Intel, but you know, that'd, that'd be a whole nother, that'd be a whole nother book maybe, or, or, uh, you know, program. Well, actually, Put a pin in that. We're gonna. I want to have that discussion afterwards. After we go through all of this, because I agree with yeah. you. I think there's some things that have changed. But um, oh, but your wife, yeah. But your wife overruled you. No DEA. You no talked DEA. to the CIA recruiter. Did now? Did you talk with him simply because you were just you know playing yeah. the field? Yeah, I was playing the field. And mo- most people back. I'm sorry. Mo- most people like you talk to today on the street, you know, they think FBI and CIA are the same, you know, they, they don't know the difference. They don't understand the difference in missions. And, and just like that, you know, I'm coming out of college and I thought, you know, okay, CIA, you know, I mean, it's a federal agency and I went in there and certainly I studied it, but, you know, I mean, he pretty much was in tune enough to realize my personality and my skill set, And he's like, you're really not an Intel guy you know like he he said you have the aptitude and stuff but really you're more law enforcement and i think that was really where i was at i didn't meet my wife till law school but um you know i mean but and then at that point like i said the the war on drugs was raging and you know i started to kind of hey maybe maybe dea and and um you know we weren't married until you know graduated but um you know we're certainly dating during that time and was she uh, going to law school as well yeah, yeah. She was uh we met in law school and then whirlwind uh romance and then married and then uh you know 30 okay 19 1990 <laughs> till yeah, I know, right? 30 <laughs> 30 uh 32 years later, right? Hey, so, and this is appropriate because kids. she didn't she didn't want you to go into DEA because she thought it was too dangerous and for our listeners just keep that in mind as John continues to tell his story. It's going to play a big role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean she's one of the reasons, I mean, you know, the prayers of a nation, but I mean, actually I have, you know, her blood transfusions, you know, kept me alive too, because she's the universal donor, but I don't, we'll get into Sweet. that later. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't want to get ahead of the story here, but I love what you just said. That's fantastic. So again, we're going to, we're going to put that in context because that's going to be very important later. But um, when you're going through law school, that's kind of challenging too, because if you join the bureau, you're going to have to move, which means yep. if you're married, she's going to have to move. How did that discussion go? Well, so here and, – and again, you know, you talk about the sacrifices and I, I – look, guys, I – to many husbands out there, I, I didn't appreciate, you know, all the sacrifices that my wife made. I mean she was certainly the smarter of the two of us, right? She was on partnership track at a big law firm. She graduated before me, gets in with a big law firm in Pittsburgh. Then I, you know – going to the FBI. She supports me. She's actually out there, you know, she's probably in better shape than me too after law school, you know, I mean, she's out there getting me running and, you know, I mean, getting in shape. And I remember like when I was, we used to train up out in, um, there was North Park is where the Pittsburgh field office did the new agent, you know, agent applicant test and, you know, some rolling hills and things like that. So for the two mile run, that's where, you know, she took me out there and she's like out there, you know, pump me up while I'm doing it, you know, practicing and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I mean, she was always supportive. We got our first office. She had a transfer to the Washington field office, um, you know, yeah. going through Hold life. 
Yeah, we yeah. are glossing through yeah. stuff fast, dude. I know you. <laughs> he's trying to hide something here, Morgan. He's hiding. No, no, no. We are, we are trained criminal investigators. We're going to drill oh, down. Fair. So, yeah, let's let's talk about applying for the FBI. So, how long of a process did that take for you to, from the time you applied till the time you were hired? It was it it was. Um, let's see. I graduated law school in ninety. When it, it, night school is a four year program. Um, but you're still going full time at night. It's, you, you still maintain 12 cr- credits, and um, it's, it's a brutal. I mean, it, it's a brutal road to hoe. But um, so I graduated in '90, and then I got in '91, 11, which was August of uh, of um, I graduated from the academy August um, August of uh, of 11. I'm sorry, August of uh, 1991. So. Um, when I applied, I probably applied. I applied right after I graduated law school, which would have been, you know, the uh, spring, like June, I guess, of 1990. And then it took me until April of 91 to us into the. Was the minimum age 25 back then to join? If, um, yeah, but I was 20, was I, I was 27 at that point. And then I also was, um, I think, uh, and and if you had a law degree or an accountant, you know there was. I think there was a waiver on that if you were an accountant or a lawyer. Yeah, especially if you spent four years in law school, that kind of shows persistence, man. Yeah, it was, going it was, at night. It yeah. is. Yeah. It so is. I mean, yeah. So I mean, that she's definitely the best thing that came out of law school. You know. Um, and so, what area of law did you focus on? I I mean, it was really. I went to Duquesne. The, the beauty of Duquesne. Law school is at the time, and I still think that's still the case. That the majority of state judges in the state of Pennsylvania come out of Duquesne University, and it's it's kind of like the we called it the proletariat law school. You know, it was a night school. It was they had a day program, but you know, it was a night school. Most of your lawyers in Western Pennsylvania come out of Duquesne. You know, and it, and there's a you know everybody has this Duquesne ring, which I don't have on today, but um, and. Everybody, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, like everybody I knew that made it, like had this really cool Duquesne ring on, you know what I mean? And, and, um, I always wanted the Duquesne ring. So as a kid and, um, you know, that's kind of where I shot for, but I, I always was interested in, in criminal. I mean, if I didn't get into the bureau, I would have, you know, tried to be a prosecutor. Um, you know, when I was working at the traveler's insurance company in their legal department during law school, I was doing workers comp and stuff like that. But then I got to the, I actually had a job offer with a federal public defender right out of law school. So I was working there my last year as an investigator full time. Um, and then, uh, and I'll t- that's another, that's another story. So while I'm with the federal public defenders, we're in a trial up in Erie, PA. And um, I see this uh, postal inspector testify, you know, and, you know, his crisp white shirt and tie. And, you know, he's just so professional. It was a, it was a mob case, a gambling case. And, um, you know, just like, wow, you know, this guy is so, prof- you know, so, so incredibly professional and, you know, how he holds himself. And it's like, I want to be that guy, you know, it's like, I didn't want to necessarily be the lawyer, but I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be that guy, you know I mean? The guy that's actually making the case and putting cases together, solving crimes and, and bringing people to justice. So that's pretty much, you know, where I went with it. But I had a good exposure, you know, during law school, certainly to federal. And it was a pretty big deal, I think, you know, I, I, but I just, the, the thing that swung me why I didn't go, I, I ended up clerking for a um, state appellate court judge, uh, the late Honorable 
Judge Tamelia, awesome guy, man. I mean, he was he was like a father to all his law clerks. I mean, this guy he he taught family law in um, at Duquesne in the night program, and then uh, you know he's a judge, and then myself and another classmate we came on as law clerks for him. But um, I went to work with him as opposed to being a trial attorney with the federal public defender because I I and I'm not saying. You know, and, and I have all the respect in the world for defense attorneys. And actually, through my FBI career, you know, the person I wanted to impress was the the criminal defense attorneys. Because if I had their respect, <clears throat> you know, what I mean, then you know, if I within the defense bar community, they knew I was a straight shooter. When it came to investigating, please. When it came to questioning your investigation and things like that, I was cuff this case. You know, what I mean, we better start looking to plea or whatever. You know, so. Um, uh, you know, so that that's kind of was my background. But I there was a case w- involving a uh, I got it on appeal, and I wrote the appeal up to the Third Circuit on um, uh, on a you know constitutional issue. So there was a nurse that came out of work one night at Shady Side Hospital in Pittsburgh, and there's two guys laying in wait for in a van. They abduct her rape and murder all right what the pittsburgh police do is they get a you know they get a confession out of the one and then they go to the second one and he's not confessing and then they uh you know have the room wired up and they put him in the uh, and and uh, he's he's invoked his right to remain silent right so what they did is they um put him in the room with the other one that just confessed and that guy that they put in a room who invoked his right to remain silent said how much did you t- how much did you tell them and that was used that statement was used in the trial which later convicted him goes through the system gets comes over to the federal public defenders on a habeas corpus i in that role write the appeal and i come up find a case hey, law real quick up, john yeah. let everybody know when you say it came up on habeas corpus what does that mean i mean i know it's like latin for right produce the body but what what does that mean at that point so basically it's your it's your it's a prisoner appeal after they there's habeas corpus in the state but also habeas corpus in the federal system it's it's basically making a constitutional argument that your constitutional rights have been violated and you know after you're tried you're tried and convicted you go through the appeal process, but you can you can allege you know ineffective assistance of counsel, or you can uh, allege some constitutional right violation. And after it goes through the state system, it pops over to the federal system, and then it could go all the way up to the Supreme Court from there. With that, but it's purely a constitutional argument. Somehow your due process rights or something was violated. In this case, what I argued. In, in this appeal to the Third Circuit, was um, that the uh, uh, that the police, by putting after he had invoked his right to silent, which is sacrosanct, right? We know that once somebody invokes a right, not in their right to an attorney, is sacrosanct. Once they invoke their right to an attorney, you know, all questioning must cease. That's what we're taught in law enforcement. What they did is they, by putting him in that room, I argued that it was the uh, same effect as questioning him, right? That they continue in questioning, and therefore his statement that he, um, you know, how much did you tell them being used against him was a violation of his his right to his right to counsel and have counsel present. But neither guy knew that the room was wired, right? No, neither knew. 
neither knew. But the, the Third Circuit bought off on my argument. And I had a problem with that, you know, because now it's not that the guy went free. He had to be retrialed. But at that point, you know, you're 15 years down the line and, you know, witnesses' memories fade and I don't know what happened. But, you know, so was it – look, hey, it's really cool. It's it's it's, uh, it, it's an honor. You know, you guys want to hire me as a federal public defender. I could be right out of law school. But just my heart as a, at that point as a defense attorney, you know, wasn't in it. It's a very necessary process, Right. In our in our justice system, it's the the hallmark of our justice system to be, you know, represented the by counsel. Process. Yeah, but it just wasn't. I, I knew for me, it probably wasn't the right fit at that point in my life. Could I, you know, I defend people now? I'd have no problem with that. I just um, but just but back not at then, that time in your life. Yeah, yeah. And see that, how much. If we had let you tell the story, it would have been, yeah, I got out of law school, went to the FBI. We just glossed over 20 minutes of good shit because you needed to get – what was that, a Bloody Mary or a mimosa? I didn't see that. That was the celery fellow I was cut. I think it was a mimosa this morning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, you know, the, and the cool thing about that is, is – and our listeners, our regular listeners hear us. We, we give defense attorneys a hard time, and most of the time it's in jest. We need – we need that to maintain the judicial system, the rule of law that we practice and love here in the United States. And, you know, there's no police officer I know of that wants to put an innocent person in jail. That's why Absolutely. we tolerate the system that we have. That's what makes us different from a, a lot of the rest of the world. Let me tell you when a cop really wants a good defense attorney is when they're defending him from something. Yeah, yeah. That's when you have no problem having a good defense attorney. Yeah. That's when and you so go that, to those you, attorneys that everybody MFs and, you know, <laughs> I'll hey, never look, talk but, but look, there are there are attorneys on both sides. There's cops, you know, whatever. Every there always there's always an element in every profession that shouldn't be there. That's just the way life is, right? But um but to your, I like what you said, John, that when you've got the respect um, it was funny. When you have a good relationship with the bar, mine wasn't a big case, but as a trooper, I'm doing a DUI one time. And uh, I, I, it was in a little town where I made the arrest and I just got the streets transposed. It was Avenue instead of street, whatever. And the defense attorney's making a big thing out of it, but he walks up to me and under his breath, he goes, yeah, don't worry, I'll be done in two minutes. And then he goes, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> I get it. You know, it's part of, it's part of the thing. So uh, yeah. but, they but, have to, they, you know, you have to give a, you know, vigorous, vigorous defense, defense of your client. Yeah. Right. But even though when you're going down in flames, you, you have to do that. And I, so yeah. Hey, but let me ask you, though, mm-hmm. this – I'm going to ask you to – I don't want to talk about what came later and all your experience later, but just bookend it with this before we start getting into your FBI journey. How much impact did that have on you in terms of how you looked at cases and did cases as an FBI agent is having that experience being on the other side initially, not later? Oh, it was it – was- yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, you, you, because one, <clears throat> you, um, it was an introduction to, aside from just book knowledge and the, and the going through law school and things like that, but it was a, it was a bare bones. And, and man, I'll tell you, even, you know, my last part of my career, or, you know, most of my career was spent in Fort Myers, Florida. I mean, I had all the respect in the world for the Federal Public Defender Service because they had really good attorneys, at least where I was. I mean, there's there's a couple, I won't mention their name, but man, they were tough, you know, and they, they would hold you to, you know, and hold your case to the fire as they should. But there was there was no cutting corners. And, and um, you know, I want to say true believers. I mean, but they were really, I found that they, that the attorneys at the Federal Public Defender's Office in the Western District of Pennsylvania, you know, they, they, their first love was the Constitution, right? Their first love was, you know, ensuring that, you know, the rights of the accused are protected and upholding, 
you know, the Constitution. And, uh, and, you know, you just saw it from a from a different side, you know, not necessarily saying at that point in time I wanted to, you know, uh, you know, serve in that role. But yeah. but yeah, but I mean, yeah, you had all the respect in the world. And, you know, and I learned about the sentencing guidelines and I learned about, you know, really everything they deal with is like what? Like all the stuff you deal with as a cop, right? Is Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, suppression hearings, you know what I mean? All that, you know, bare bones. And, and you really had a, a really good working knowledge of, of how the law worked and, and uh, you know, what the tricks of the trade were and, you know, different how they would cross-examine people and um yeah i mean i just i I just learned a tremendous amount it was a great experience i got a question for you now so so we're you're in the academy the fbi academy there at quantico virginia (laughs) do you ever have to write any memos come on now this is honest you're under oath you get in trouble no never no what what? No, I never. I never was involved in an OPR my whole career. No, I never had an item of of evidence suppressed at any point. You know, not that I didn't lose cases. I mean, I lost. Yeah, I mean, there's there's cases you lost, but yeah. Everybody, I mean, that's just yeah. You wish you had a perfect batting average, but that's just the way it goes. But so you never got in any trouble in the academy. You never showed up late. You never had to. What what are you, Mister? <laughs> you weren't out on a field training exercise, and the, and the bad guy parked his car, and you went over and opened the door and looked at their script to see where they're going to be next, or anything like that. I'm trying to think. I can't think back that far, but I don't recall <laughs> ever minute, Murphy, being is this in trouble. A confession on your part? <laughs> I have no recollection of that, Your Honor. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't even go out and drink in the parking lot with the National Academy guys. You know, until probably my last week there or something. You oh know? man, we used to go to Lunga Point on the weekends with a keg up there and meet those guys. Yeah, I know, man. I know. <laughs> DEA was different, man. A little yeah. bit. All right, so we've got we've got a Mister Goody Two Shoes here. We're going to have to treat this. Uh, Your Honor, permission <laughs> to treat the witness as hostile. <laughs> Absolutely, granted. <laughs> no, so no, but let me ask. I was going to ask you a question around the academy too. Did you get any shit because you were a had worked the defense side before joining the bureau? I mean, good natured or otherwise. Yeah, during the um, during the interview for the, and they used to do the interview a lot differently, right? And you know, because of lawsuits and stuff, I think it was a bunch of nonsense. But they they uh, you used to your initial interview, or actually, you know after you took the test and, you know, passed. And when you got your, your new agent interview, you know, whether you're getting a thumbs up or thumbs down, they used to have these like, um, uh, they, they had, you know, grizzled street agents would do your interview for you. And that's where I got, that's where I, I picked up a lot of it. You know what I mean? They, they, they gave me a hard time, but it's, but it's good. You know what I mean? I, I, even like the books that you read and the news articles and, you know what I mean? What you were, your interests were, I mean, they really went into a lot and, uh, almost like investigated. That was like almost, you know, five agents sitting around a table, you know, and that's probably the way, I, I mean, I think our hiring process was probably a lot better back then, but you know, well, it's like being in the star chamber when you go through those. Yeah, really was. You know, you know what it reminds me of is that scene. Which movie was it? Was it the Gauntlet? No, not the Gauntlet, but um, it had Tyne Daly in there with uh, Clint Eastwood as an Inspector Harry Callahan, and he's on her interview board. Well, tell me about your most important felony arrest, then, Inspector. Well, I've never made one. Well, maybe you can tell me about a parking ticket you wrote, and you could just see, you know, <laughs> Dirty Harry, Dirty Harry man, just oh, and then he ends up with this traditional oh marvelous you know <laughs> and then yeah, she yeah. ends up being his partner so uh but yeah that's it but you know but that's uh there was a joke of one of my um former bosses used to be a executive assistant director at the bureau and uh 
he talked about, and look, and I'm not picking on the bureau. Everybody's got their guys. You wonder how the hell they got hired, and they go, this guy's so dumb, he couldn't find a brick in Old Town. And that's Old Town Alexandria is, has got nothing but bricks all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and the other question was, who was on this guy's interview board? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you go through your, your career and you, you see that. Right. Every agency has them. And, and you know, I, I remember my first supervisor, um, Eddie McLaughlin, who was like a legend in the FBI on the on the C6 drug squad. And his statement was, yeah, you know, we got John, we got our fair share of a-holes. You know, what I mean, but he you know, he used the word. But but uh, yeah, I mean, and you, you got to wonder. But hey, the place survives despite, you know. Well, yep. every every agency survives in spite of a few bad apples. And uh, but, you know, the nice thing about it is ninety nine. Point nine percent of all the people out there are good, honest, decent people. Want like you? I, I want to do the job. You know, I want to do it right. Um, I, I don't want to send an innocent person to prison. You know, uh, you couldn't. Your conscience couldn't live with that. So, but let's talk about now getting into your uh, FBI career. So you graduate the academy. Um, what's your what what? Tell us about the process for picking your first post uh, duty. You know, how do you go about? Do you get to put in suggestions, or do they just come out and tell you, "Hey, John, this is where you're going." As, you're smiling. The, There's a story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, as I used to say, it's it's a drunken monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. There you go. That's, that's, that's a great that's explanation. You, <laughs> you, you might, you know, <clears throat> I mean, it was it was the craziest thing because the only people that got to where they wanted to go. Uh, their first pick was like New York because if you came out of New York, you went back to New York, and that's was I don't know if they still do it that way, but back then, that was how it worked. Um, there, you know, they give you a list of choices. You know, back then, I think what is there like fifty six field offices, and you you got to pick um, twelve or something like that. And you could back then, you could either try to get to a small office knowing that within three to five years you would be transferred to a large office or you could get your and then and then after that you can get your office of preference after you did your time in a big office but everybody had to do a time in a big office um, then they uh, or in the alternative you could pick a big office and then after you know doing your time in a big office and they didn't promise you three to five years but after doing your big your time in a big office you could get your office of preference. So it was, it was an easier way to get back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I never got back to, but, um, they, so I went big office first. And then back then, I think there was like 12 major metropolitan field offices, um, you know, New York to Chicago's Miami. And I picked, um, actually, I think my first choice is like Houston. Cause we thought let's get somewhere. I'm married at this point and I figured we'll, get somewhere warm and you know we picked but washington dc and baltimore were like third and fourth and i got the third pick to to washington and there was there's no rhyme or reason for it i mean people that put in for east coast were getting west coast and people putting in for the west coast were getting east coast it's just no one got where they really wanted to go I that mean, drunken monkey was busy wasn't he oh, yeah yeah are. it was just a, and some there's a couple people that hit the lottery and they got exactly where they wanted to go and they ended up staying. And then the cruel joke is after I was in for a few years, um, they changed that, that people were um, – you if you got to a, a – I think by the time – yeah, I guess it was – I'm trying to think who took over. But but if you got – even if you were in a big office and you got sent – or you got sent to a small office, they changed that, that you didn't have to move in three to five years and they – you know, ran out of money to keep moving people around. So a lot of people stayed in like these nice cushy RAs and stuff for their whole whole career if they liked it. 
uh, resin resin agency, like small satellite offices out of a out of a field office. Yeah, one of my buddies was on the police department, got on the bureau. He spent, uh, and I don't know how he managed it. He spent his twenty years uh, in Oklahoma City, never had to move. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think if Oklahoma uh, City was a big office back then or not, but well, you know, and it's expensive to, for these government moves, government employees. I think the last time I moved, they estimated the cost at, at between 100 and 125 thousand. You know, so if you're if you're picking up, how many agents do you have in the FBI? About ten thousand, right? Uh, actually, gun and badge carriers. I think they're about thirteen or fourteen thousand now. So I mean, if you even take ten percent of those and, and move them every year, you know, it's a phenomenal burden on the taxpayers. To be quite honest, well, about that's it. just that's like the military is. folks, you know, doing a move all the time. My dad was military. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like by the time I was in fifth grade, we had I was born at Fort Riley. We had moved to Fort Bragg, then went to Monterey, California, went to Iran, came back to uh, Dodge City, went to South Bend, Indiana, and then back to good old Chapman, Kansas. All by the time I was in fifth grade. Sounds like your dad couldn't hold a job there. <laughs> no, he could hold a job. I thought they were trying to get rid of me. They were moving without telling me where we were, we're going. trying to lose you. <laughs> <laughs> We've moved, Morgan. Don't bother looking for us. But uh, hey, John, so, when when now in, when you're in the academy, when did you find out what your post was going to be? At the beginning or at the end? Or, or uh, it was it was after it's it was 16 weeks back then, so it would have been somewhere past the halfway point. You, you know, you have that big night. You know, they they do it in the evening. They bring you down to the um, uh, is this like I the last this, supper or something? Your final yeah, meal? there's like a stage, and I mean, you know, they bring you up, and and I remember when we got it. Um, there was a friend of mine. We probably the first day we're still close friends till this day, but we we met in the academy, Paul Timko, and and Paul and I, um, you know, probably hit it off early on in in the academy, and you know, uh, but so when we we both got Washington field office, and when we looked at our orders, like man, we they must really think a lot of us. We we're going to Washington field office, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, it's it's the murder capital. I mean, it's just the highest violent crime in the country. It was just uh, the the old Buzzards Point field office had had literally had rats in it, and I mean, it's just it was awful. But um, you know, everybody commiserated. Now Buzzards Point, that was the real name of the location, right? Yeah, Buzzards Point in the. I don't know if it's historically accurate, but the story that was told through the years was that's where during the Civil War, they would bring the soldiers up from the battle, the dead soldiers up from the battlefields in the south, up the Potomac to the Anacostia River, and they would put them you know, on Buzzard's Point while they were waiting for burial space over at Arlington across the river. So therefore, the Buzzard's I don't know if that's true, but it, it kind of made it sounds sense. Sounds like a good how, story. Yeah, how yeah. blighted it was because actually the first day, um, the first day I showed up, there was still um, there's still police tape on the sidewalk from a homicide that happened there the night before. <laughs> Welcome to DC. Yeah, there was like a gangbanger bar uh, nightclub next door. I mean, there's always shootings happening there, and and uh, there's actually a couple agents I knew coming back from surveillance, got in, you know, shootings out in front of the building and stuff like that. It was, it was, it was a crazy, a a crazy time. Yeah. The wild thing is I went back there. I was up for a conference uh, back in March and a buddy of mine, Aaron McGee, who I used to work with, took it. He lives up in DC still. And he, he took us past there and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, a, <laughs> they tore down the building. I mean, they have this beautiful glass condo. There's outdoor cafes. You know what I mean? It's just a spectacular what they, they did to that whole area, but uh, it, it's pretty transition. 
Yeah, it's pretty hard to believe what it used to look like and what it used to be like. Well, you know, the D, uh, did you ever go to the DEA office in D.C. back during that yeah. time? Yeah. No, yeah. when it was down, I think it was on, on I Street. Right, You had to yeah. go by the stripper club to get up to the DEA office. Yeah, it was unbelievable, right? That was, that was a rough area, too. I mean, with all, all of D.C. was pretty pretty bad back then. You know, I was just at the uh, DEA Academy a few weeks ago. My partner, Javier Pena, and I got to speak to the basic agent trainees there. And so one of the questions I had was, when do you guys find out where you're going now? Because when I went through, you found out like a week before you graduated. You know, and, and you still lost some people like that. But now they find out at the beginning. And they might even find out before they go into the academy because they got tired of spending the money on the backgrounds and have them go through all the training and then they quit and go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Which is the right – I think it's the right thing to do. So – oh, no, no, it is. It, <laughs> like you say, the drunken monkey. When uh, when I got on the state patrol, I've told other folks for this, but you'll appreciate this, John. I was in Salina, Kansas. Another guy was in Olathe. Another guy was in Garden City. They took me in Salina, moved me to Garden City. The guy in Garden City moved him to Olathe, and the guy to Olathe <laughs> moved him to Salina. Guys, you could have just left us there. We were already, I mean, anyway, I digress. There we go. Uh, drinking game. Number, that's two. number two. Yeah. Hey, but but let's, so when you, when you got through the Academy, once you, Washington, D.C., yeah, you say murder capital, but from your wife's standpoint, though, I mean, you talk about law firms, just you could throw a dart at it and hit a hundred. Yeah. Did that provide her any career opportunities moving to Washington, D.C. when you guys went there? Yeah. So she was with then Kirkpatrick Lockhart and I was K&L Gates. It was like, it's like one of the top, you know, I don't know, they're, they're probably in the top 10 firms, uh, multinational firm now. But um, yeah, they had an office in Washington. So she transferred, uh, she was able to transfer down there. Not the same oh, you good. Know, litigation section, but uh, yeah, she, she transferred. So it was, you know, more seamless, you know, than, than mm-hmm. most people. And it was, that was kind of one of the ideas of putting down where we, you know, I was trying to get into a legal market that she could, you know, continue her career, you know. So, um, but moving out there, what are, first of all, what areas did you, what, where did you end up living? Did you live in DC proper around no, the birds? No, we lived way out. I mean, back then, I mean, now it's, it, again, it's unrecognizable with the number of people that moved in the last 20 years, but we were out in an area called, um, uh, well, now they call it this posh zip code. It's called Potomac Falls, right? Uh, back I know it's it. Loudoun, Hot Falls. Yeah. Loudoun County, right down the Loudoun road. County. Falls, yeah. yeah, Loudoun County. So it was Cascades was the neighborhood. It was just like, we were one of the first houses being built out there. It was just, it was a bunch of, you know, farmland and there's actually barns that they tore down and there was, you know, trees and they came in and built roadways and really you moved out as, you know, where you could afford a home. And, um, yeah, we're pretty far out. I mean, it was, it was a long commute. I can't even imagine what that commute would be like nowadays. I mean, because the roads haven't gotten any better, but it no, was it was tough all. back then. It was, Route 7 still sucks. Um, well, yeah, back during can, that time, you could get on the toll road going in. And remember, you probably remember this. They used to have a trooper sitting over where the crossover was to get on the free road. And you just hit him with the blue lights and he'd wave as you went by. And that way you got out of paying the tolls and you could get to work quicker. And they finally put the silver line out that way for, you know, people, I guess, commuting into yeah. D.C. Well, it's but- not in typical government fashion. It's not open yet. Cost overruns, oh, uh, you, you know, and they've had the buildings, the parking centers, the garages done for a long time with electricity and everything going. Here we are wasting taxpayer dollars and we yet mm-hmm. still don't have. Anyway, but I digress. Number three, drinking game. But you made me digress. So let's go back to uh, your D- your post in D.C. What squad? Because tell people, too, when you get assigned to something, you're on a squad. So what kind of squad did you get assigned to when you came out to D.C., the Washington field office? So Washington field office back then, everybody 
how to go to applicants. And Carla B. Fad, character, associates, reputation. And if you got there during a presidential election year, you were screwed, basically. You you ended up some people couldn't get off the applicant squad for, you know, a year or two years sometimes um, oh, during a presidential election year. But they, what they did is they did a little teaser. Hold on a second. Yeah, when you say applicants, wh- who's applying for what? It, it's um, government employees. So the squad I was on, we did presidential appointments and um, DOJ attorneys, uh, Department of Justice attorney background investigations. You interview neighbors, you interview, you know, coworkers, you, you know, uh, go out and you, a lot of this stuff's probably been contracted out. Now I think they still have, they, they still do background investigations like on our own employees. But, but uh, back then, you know, you were doing, and, and FBI still does the background investigations on, you know, Supreme Court justices and, uh, uh, you know, court um, and, and federal court judges and district court judges and things like that, magistrate judges. Yeah, even when I hired on DEA, the bureau did our background investigations back then. Do everybody's now? It's I, did they take your gun away from you? Because man, I'd <laughs> want to commit suicide after two years. Yeah, yeah, no, but um, so but but what they did is they gave you a little teaser. You started out in, in Washington Field, and you got to spend three weeks on a criminal squad. So some people, my buddy Paul went to the bank robbery squad. I got on the no, I think Paul was on a drug squad with me. I got on C six was a drug gang squad. And, you know, it was a bunch of old timers and, and, you know, doing like enterprise level cases, really good, uh, you know, amazing cases. And, you know, one of them, the, the squad I was almost working, Rafe Wedmond back at the time, Rafe Wedmond too, we call it because first Rafe Wedmond was a DEA case. He was the, the drug kingpin um, who had brought crack cocaine to Washington, D.C., um, 20 days on, you know, a couple weeks on that, you go, you know, we had a, there was a, um, uh, experienced, you know, old timer agent, Steve Benjamin kind of t- takes the young guys under his wing and he's taking us out on search warrants. And I remember, you know, first search warrant up in Northeast DC, Jamaican drug house. And, um, you know, you're going out with, you know, meeting different cops on the task forces were in their infancy. And we were, you know, we had task force agents and, and different people and you're going out on search warrants. And then, you know, after a few weeks of having fun and living on the edge, uh, you're going to go to you, – you go to this, you know, this squad doing background investigations. The thing was, though, back then, if you were you wanted to go to a <laughs> – yeah, you're stuck. I only got stuck here about eight months on, on background investigations, and then I got back to C6, that drug and gang squad, and that's where I wanted to be. But the um, – the way you did it too is in your free time, like after you you did, you know, you worked your, you know, time in your AUO, you would volunteer for different squads if they had arrests, if they had search warrants, if they had surveillances. So acronym, (laughs) acronym alert, AUO. Oh, uh, uh, uncontrolled administrative, uncontrolled overtime. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was, you don't get paid overtime in the FBI. You get like a a 25% stipend because, but they get their, you they know, get their money the out of you, don't they? You. Yeah, you, oh, there's yeah. there's way more hours, and you can. My wife will attest to that. I put in way more than what I ever got paid in AUO, but uh, as as we all did. What was a what was a standard? Well, speaking of that, so how many hours a week were you putting in? Oh, back then, I mean, because you're trying to. I didn't want it. The FB, the Washington field office has all the embassies, and so they had foreign counterintelligence squads, and so half the office worked FCI or 
fledgling is before 9-11, but they had a couple counterterrorism squads. Some people wanted to do that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get in the thick of it. I wanted to do violent crime work and um, put cases together and, and, you know, work criminal investigations. So you had to try to vie your way onto one of these squads, and you did that by getting recognized by the supervisors and going out and volunteering. So fugitive arrests and things like that, you know, there's a group of us, we would always raise our hand, even, you know, when we were done with our, we had a pretty cool supervisor, uh, Manny Johnson on the uh, uh, applicant squad. And, you know, he knew the game and he basically, you get your work done, then you can go out and, and play with the criminal squads, or then you can go out and do stuff. Or you did it in the evenings when you were done. So, you know, you, you would work a full day and then, you know, if there was something going on at night and, you were trying to get to that squad, you'd go and basically volunteer your time and, and go out and get involved in it. And that's how, how you got back to a criminal squad. And that's how I got to a criminal squad. Paul got to a C4, which was the bank robbery squad. And, um, that's kind of how we did it. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the reason you were able to only cut your time in purgatory to eight months is because you went out and did a lot of volunteering with the other folks, got recognized and got onto the squad. What made you want to, what was it about? Was it was it about gangs? Was it about drugs? What is it both? What is what was it about that particular thing? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with bank robberies. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, with violent crime. Why'd you why why was why did this particular squad interest you so much? It was the time, you know, it was a time, I guess, in history, you know, that DC, when I say DC was out of control. Um, the crack epidemic hit like between ninety eighty six and, and eighty seven. Um I think, you know, actually because of Murph and, and, you know, DEA's activities down in Columbia, you know, there was a – there was um, in the early 80s, actually cocaine use in, in the U.S. was going down, you know. And there was uh, – in the, the co- there was a high supply, lower demand. The introduction of crack, I mean, you know, I think that's a fascinating story in and of itself, you know, other than the false narratives are out there that the CIA or the U.S. government, you know. I know. It's a bunch of BS. But I mean, but basically it was it was marketing on the, on the part of, you know, think about that. Look back at like freebasing, right? Um, uh, what was the comedian? Richard Pryor, Richard right? Richard Pryor, yeah. Richard Pryor. Like cocaine was the the wealthy person's drug. It was, you know, with the starlets, with the sports people, you know, the high net worth people use coke in the U.S. And, and the poor, the, the you know, underprivileged, the, the everybody else didn't. And they – in freebasing, I think, was started – you used to mix what? Ether, alcohol – and um, in cocaine, and that was the only way you could vaporize it because you can't just burn cocaine and expect it to vaporize. You have to get it to a certain temperature, and and it was a very dangerous operation that people tried, and people would blow up or you know, you know, at a high degree of heat, it would explode, and they would burn. And like Richard, the late Richard Pryor, I mean, he was horribly disfigured after you know experimenting with with freebasing, but that was essentially what crack did. Um, some you know. The Colombians, the the cartels, they had chemists, right? They they paid a lot of money, they made a lot of money, and they figured out ways to improve their product. And and either by you know by guesswork or by you know hiring good scientists, they figured out that putting baking soda, right, in in cocaine, mixing it together and boiling it, right, you could get cocaine. It didn't change the chemical compound any, but I think it you know, made it into rock form and correct me, you're the DEA guy, but, um, you could, 
by by making that change or that you could a, a small amount of crack cocaine um, could be smoked and the vapors as opposed to snorting it you know went immediately into your into your lungs and you got a euphoric high from what you know addicts would tell you and they were always chasing that first high you know to to get that and and that's why it was so highly addictive and then so going back like 1986 before I'm even in the FBI you know there's this thing called crack i think it it hit like 28 cities and then one of them being Washington DC then the violence that that came along with protecting that that drug trade um and affected mostly you know black and predominantly african american communities and and um and you know I, the the um there was calls by you know actually if you look back historically you know the uh Charlie Rangel and the Congressional Black Caucus and Quasi and Fume and all these people, they were pushing, you know, strict gun, drug laws because it was just devastating the communities. And this was like this this scourge, you know. So you have to go like the Raisin Dutra, Detra, you know, the spirit of the times, you know. This is like the scourge that came up on this country and was just, you know, the, the number of like – Babies being born to addicted to crack and, 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 you know, the number of over – when it first came out, people figured, oh, use the same amount of crack, right, um, that, that you would snort. And then I think you just had like ridiculous numbers of overdoses and hospitals were being overwhelmed. Emergency rooms were being overwhelmed with overdoses. But by the late 80s, you know, every year in every major city, D.C. being the worst – but in every major city, the, the the bodies just were piling up. I mean, the homicide rates were through the roof. The violent crime rates were through the roof. And that's when I came of age. That's when I came into the Bureau. And that's, you know, you're fighting for the soul of America. You're protecting freedom and liberty and all that stuff. But this is where the fight was. The fight was in the drug war. The fight was in – The fight was at the street level. I mean, that's where it was happening. Level. That's where it was happening. And I mean, in – let me spend a few minutes, and I don't want to, you know, digress too much because I know you want to get in the story. But I'll, I'll start with a quote: "He who forgets the past is doomed to repeat it." Right? And I, unfortunately, I, I think we're forgetting the the recent past um, w- with the current false narratives that are out there. But let's set the stage for what DC was like and what crack was doing. These were not, you know, non. Essentially, you had this wave, and it was done for, you know, I believe the historical fact of it is, you know, the Colombians, a big chunk got taken out of, um, you know, with, with you know, in a, we'll give Murphy and uh, Javier and, and, you know, DEA, you know, the, the countless numbers of DEA agents that were working that, you know, by taking down the Medellin cartel and, and Pablo Escobar and, and the, you know, knocking away at that. I mean, there was, that was a big hit to them, right? And, and their market share was going down. Um, and there was, and, and the price of cocaine was also going down. The, the profit margin on cocaine was, was going down. Cause again, it was, it was the rich person's, uh, drug. It was the drug of the movie stars and sports figures and things like that. Um, they needed to, you know, access a different market. So, what crack did for them 
And again, you know, either they, they did it by luck or they, you know, through science and a lot of scientific experiments by hiring phenomenal um, scientists to, to, you know, rework it. But by a very simple process, they were able to uh, make what, what is legally known as what cocaine base, right, in, in, in the law. And, and essentially it's just mixing sodium bicarbonate, which is nothing more than baking soda, an 88-cent box of baking soda that you can get in any grocery store, boiling it, coming to a base form. It allows it to be smoked. Where Up to that point, powder cocaine could not be smoked. It would burn up. You have to get it to a, a certain – for it to vaporize, and it was able to vaporize. And it gives a, a quick euphoric high that does not last like powder does. It enters a bloodstream through the lungs immediately, more immediately into the blood supply, as opposed to uh, snorting it, going through your nostrils, you know, going through your, your blood vessels and things like that, which uh, snorting cocaine, my understanding, you correct me, you're the DEA expert, but snorting cocaine gives you a longer high. Um, Whereas crack cocaine gives you a quicker high, a very small amount is all you need, or you're going to overdose on it. And then, um, and then, so with that, we, you, you, they were able to introduce it to a whole market, mostly underprivileged areas. You know, uh, predominantly, uh, they they market it directly to the 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 African American community in this country in the inner cities, and that's where. That, and, and from that, the gang activity, the control of the drug markets, there was just this tsunami of violent crime that hit every American city. And like I said, it started out, you know, in the early 80s and through the mid 80s when, you know, by 1986, there's probably 28 cities that had crack introduced to it by, you know, by 87, within a year, it completely flipped and it was all over America and all of America American cities are experiencing drive-by shootings and things we never heard of up to that point, right? Common in today's news, but it and and let's just go with the numbers here, okay? Um, it, you know the 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 direct and proximate result of the crack epidemic led to the violent crime epidemic. All right, 1985. Let's go with just Washington D.C. All right. Five years before, I'm, I'm just getting into law school, tell two cities, right? I'm the kid from Pittsburgh. I'm going, getting ready to go to law school. I graduate college. I'm working full time. 1985, there's a kid about my age, right, uh, by the name of Rayful Edmond. And Rayful Edmond, by, by the age of 22, is controlling 60% of the crack cocaine market in Washington, D.C., 1985, there's 147 homicides in D.C., high homicide rate, right? 1986, it goes up to 194. 87, 225. 88, 369. D.C. starts peaking into the murder capital category. Uh, 434 and 89. 472, the year that I got to D.C., graduated from the academy and, and get there. 91, 482. 92, 450s, you know, by 94, it starts going down. But even 94 broke the area record for homicide. So if you take the surrounding counties, that broke all records, you know, for per capita nationwide. It had 703 homicides just in the D.C. metro area. And it was all related to the crack trade and control of the crack market. So digress a little bit. 
86. Rafe Wedman is this kid who grows up on the streets. By the age of nine, his his mother has him as a uh, lookout and then a and running, you know, uh, heroin and pills. Um, she's she's a heroin and pill sales, and he's she has him brings him into the drug trade at the age of nine. He's running drugs. He's a smart kid. I believe he had a scholarship or could have had a scholarship to any college, chose the drug trade over college because, you know, that's where he had been. There's probably at least with the Rafel Edmund organization, he ends up take at the age of 22. He's so good at what he's doing. You know, from the age of nine, he's run the streets, lookouts for police. And there's a area they created called the Strip, uh, down at Morton Street, Northeast in Washington, D.C. And, it's it's relevant because that's you know i believe you know the shooting that I later get involved in is probably approximate result of drugs that rafel brought in but um even though a specific gang was responsible for that shooting but it was likely his drugs that were selling it but um so rafel rafel is owns basically the the crack cocaine market in washington dc along with that the attendant homicides are piling up um the you know he's running around flaunting cash back in the day gold-plated rims on a jaguar the whole you know nine yards like you see in the movies and this guy is like basically his character has been used in subsequent movies um he's still you know serving multiple life sentences in, in federal prison although they're trying to get him out because of all the you know the redemption or the 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 um uh actual you know uh cooperation he did after he was taken down in Rafe Woodman too. 19 uh, DEA, Washington Metropolitan Field uh, Police Department, target him, target his organization, his mother, everybody. And um, eventually they arrest him um, because he is the drug kingpin. He is the guy who was going, he was going out, made contacts with people out in LA getting a drug source from LA that had a direct source into Columbia, bringing it right back into DC. Um, this guy is, you know, he's, he's the guy at the fights. He's at the basketball games. He, he drives around Washington, DC, handing out hundred dollar bills to kids in the neighborhood. I mean, this is, you know, but again, he's also the guy that brought this horrible drug that's addicted and caused is causing so much pain to the city. Right. He's seen as you know, just, just to add to that, John, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he was getting his dope from the Drujillo Blanco brothers. Who, that was two. Yeah. Ray Floydman, too. I'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the interesting part, and that's kind of where I come into it after. So it's an unprecedented trial. 100 witnesses. The jury is kept behind bulletproof glass. They're ta- the marshals take them to a different hotel every night you know, for their protection. Rafael Edmund is is kept in prison down in Quantico, Virginia, during the trial. He's helicoptered up into D.C. It's a big spectacle. Uh, he and uh, the rest of the crew they are sentenced um, to I think two life sentences at that time. That was a DEA case up until '89, two years before I, or a year before I get in the bureau, and then he's put in um, Lewisburg Federal Prison. End of story. Right? Not really. Bodies are still um, piling up in D.C. Crack is still king, um, and that's one thing. When I yeah, hey John, 
Real, real quick, when he went to prison, was there anything that declined? Was there anything that was impacted as a result of him being taken off the street, or did his did he run this from prison? Well, that's 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 the fun part of the story, right? So I get to um, I get to the Washington field office in 1990. The the violent crime and epidemic is still, you know, you're you're deep into the the tsunami, right? You're you're not even in the eye of the hurricane yet, and it's just, you know, there's shootings and random shootings and and things spilling into, you know, Georgetown and and you know uh, areas frequented restaurants and things like that. And there, it was just really a city under siege, you know. It was it was literally like a war zone. I, I really think it's probably the closest this country came to a civil war prior to you know, the 1860s, you know, you had the National Guard patrolling parts of Washington, D.C. I mean, it's, it's it was just hard to fathom. I mean, it wasn't uncommon. I, I say the, the signature sound of the city back then, you know, when you were out and, you know, with your detective partner out, you know, in southeast D.C. was like, you know, the staccato ring of automatic weapon fire. You know, I mean, it's just it was it, you were getting calls on the radio all the time, shots fired and different things happening. It was just it was pretty much mayhem. Right. In our, in our nation's capital. Totally different than what it is now, although, you know, that, that's starting to peak up. But I mean, it was unrecognizable compared to what it is. So Rafel's... Yeah. I just want to put a fine point on that. People are looking at today thinking, oh, it's getting bad. To your point, if you go back and think history, and it's not that long ago in history, we have too short of a view of history. You're talking about in the 80s, they were killing nearly 500 people a year the drug trade was up. Crack was an epidemic, right? And that's the point I, I want to make sure we hammer home on this, is you, you can't look at today just in the prism of today. You have to look at today as what, what went on before, because if you don't solve the problems, this is exactly where it's going to go back to. We're going to go back to three, four hundred, five hundred homicides a year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so disingenuous, and we probably don't want to go there, but a lot of these political leaders now and stuff that, were, that made their name you know, made their name on, you know, Eric Holder was a U.S. attorney in in Washington, D.C. during that time. It was Eric Holder, let's, you know, who had the MVP list, most violent persons list. You knew you couldn't take people off the streets on homicide because of witnesses and, you know, witnesses getting killed or threatened and things like that. And the idea was get them off by any means necessary, jaywalking, being facetious, but you know, take them off the streets on a gun charge, take them off on a drug charge, whatever way you can get, you know, DEA, FBI, Washington Metropolitan Field Office, everybody pulled their sources together and, and identified who the hundred most violent persons were in the city, and they were targeted to get taken off the street as a way to reduce crime. I th- I believe that's how that problem was solved back then. We forget about that, you know, and and then you know. Uh, you know, this this whole false narrative out there that police are evil and you know uh, that that we're you know inherently you know our justice system which is the greatest justice system in the world plenty of problems right but travel the world and see what else is out there you know i mean it's it's uh it's still the you know we're not inherently i don't believe you know i mean we got lots of problems but we're not inherently racist and our system isn't inherently racist you know th- this whole you know, the, the crack epidemic was so severe, everybody was calling for it. Didn't matter, you know, your, your, you know, your income. I mean, the people that lived in these 
neighborhoods that you know their neighborhoods were taken over by gang activity you know that the the um uh, the, the political leaders of all stripes and and parties you know were calling for it i mean i mean you could look it up on the on the in the in the congressional record charlie rangel uh back then accused ronald reagan of not being tough enough on crime you know with with the crime bill that came out in in the late i think it was like 1987 crime bill or something like that but i mean it that that is a stage that I think people need to go back and and say this is what things were. You know, what I mean, this is how things were back then. And how did the tide turn? That you know, now we're, you know, unfortunately, I think we're we're getting back there. But I digress. So Rayful is in jail now. He's in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, and it, it, Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary had a lot of the drug traffickers, but they also had the Colombian drug traffickers, the Trujillo Blanco brothers. And then his mother, their mother, Griselda, was known as the Black Widow, right? She's There is a tie-in. So you folks, you've heard us talk about this before. Griselda is room temperature now because the Colombians have a long memory um, of stuff. But yeah, but this, it's amazing. Sorry to interrupt for a second. It's amazing. You just mentioned that. I knew kind of where you were going, Steve. But when when you think about Griselda Blanco, we talk, We had George Young as our second guest on here when he, he knew about her, never really dealt with her. But you look at this world. You think it's a big world, but in the world of dope trafficking, it's actually a very small world as well, too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And you got, you know, Griselda was Pablo's representative in South Florida. And she herself, I mean, <laughs> why would any man marry her when she's already got the nickname the Black Widow, meaning her husband's die? <laughs> What's he? Tell, 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 tell they die tell, very tell, violently, too. Tell John about your presentations. You do a whole presentation. Don't you put a picture up there of Griselda and basically say, kind of like, oh, God, look at this? Oh, yeah, she's uglier than shit. <laughs> I mean, just look her up. <laughs> Google her. Anyway, well, back to you, John. Sorry. I'm sorry. We digress. <laughs> Drinking game. That's number three. Go ahead. So Rafel, Rafel Edmund gets in there into Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and in the Bureau of Prisons, you know, wisdom, they they put all the drug dealers and traffickers and the major offenders in Lewisburg, uh, just up the road. I mean, it's a couple hours from Washington, D.C. And Rafel hooks up with the Trujillo Blanco brothers in prison. Their roommates are, are on the same, you know, on the same thing, right? Cell block, yeah. So Rafel, basically, Steve Benjamin, who was the case agent um, uh, down on C6, uh, has, you know, old-time case agent, you know, had lots of informants out there. And Steve's the guy that took all the young guys under his wing. You know, Steve was married to the Bureau, except on Friday nights because he raced stock cars, you know, out in Southern Maryland. And, you know what I mean? But, but basically, uh, you know, Steve, you know, was the guy that took us all out and gave each of us a part of his big case. It was Steve and Jimmy Cottle, who were the two case agents on the, on the Rafel 2, the Rafel case out of Lewisburg. At that time, and it, it and actually it came out of the Rafel case, uh, jail, jail calls weren't recorded from prisoners. And now we have this system that, you know, Anytime you you can listen in on a on a jail call, you know they they tell the prisoner that their calls being monitored. But up until that point, jail calls weren't being. And it, it, as a result of the Rayful Edmund case, um, Congress had hearings and things like that, and they funded having Bureau of Prisons jail calls uh, recorded. Now that's a standard. Every state and county prison does the same thing. But um, Rafel gets up there, gets with the Trujillo Blanco brothers. They are part of the um, uh, Medellin 
cartel, correct? And they are um, in, in, they now have their sources on the other side, Mom, Griselda, or their, their South Florida sources in a direct pipeline into Colombia, whereas Rafael didn't have the direct pipeline into Colombia. He had to go through a third middleman. He still supplies 60% of the crack cocaine in, in Washington, D.C. Um, he gets with them, and they start connecting each other. This Trujillo Blanco brothers being the supplier and Rafel having all his lieutenants and people still out there and, and people that want to work for Rafel because uh, he's Rafel Edmund, right? And he starts directing his drug trafficking organization from the prison phones in Lewisburg. FBI goes up, squad C6, squad I, I broke out of applicants and I got over there and I was just one little tiny cog in the wheel, right? Um I wasn't the case agent on it, but you know we were running wiretaps on all the people on the outside of Rafel's organization, listening in, and then Rafel, um, uh, you know, doing the jail calls. And there's a funny story from that. Uh, so this guy is like, I mean, it was amazing. We were running out of the the old post office building on the top floor of the post office building in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. You know, we were up high because back then, you know, the old equipment you had to have the microwave that shot in. And we had a camera on on the pay phones. He'd go to the pay phone every day. He'd pick up. He'd call one of his girlfriends or call somebody on the outside, and then he'd ask him to do a three way. And they would three way, and he would give direction on you know where a pickup was going to be or whatever. And you had wires going on the Trujillo Blanco brothers doing the same thing, but bringing in the cocaine. And then the squad had surveillance teams out and they were, you know, picking off supplies as they came in or working with, you know, back then it was customs, you know, if, if things were coming in via, you know, commercial airliner, you know, they were in the, in the different places. But that was basically, you know, for months and months and months and almost a year, um, you know, more than a year, there's just wire after wire. And I, I think I worked every holiday. I, I worked July 4th. I was up in Lewisburg. I worked Thanksgiving day. I mean, it was just, it was a pretty brutal schedule, but it, it was that kind of sacrifice that ended up bringing Don, eventually bringing Don Rafael Edmond and bringing down, you know, that the, the rest putting it, you know, in, uh, you know, nail in that coffin or, you know, putting the, the spike in the heart, I guess. Rafael eventually, I'm getting ahead years, but Rafael ends up, you know, cooperating with the government. Um, and, and then they set up all these people on the outside and the whole thing comes you know, get, gets rounded up, you know, hey, and that's John yeah. real quickly. Let's before, yeah, before we go too far in the future, but this, what you're saying is Rafael went to prison. That was Rafael Edmonds one, but while he's in prison, you make Rafael Edmonds two case. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. DEA did Rafael Edmonds one, put him in prison, put him in for two life sentences, but that didn't stop him. He, he continued once he gets in prison, he hooks up with the Trujillo Blanco brothers in prison and they start supplying. He starts. He and the Trujillo Blanco starts running. Right, and that makes your s- second case. Got it. Right, and that makes the second case. And they start running the drug empire and running all the, the cocaine in D.C. out of Lewisburg Federal Prison in Pennsylvania. It's an amazing. To that to that point, um, one of the reasons we we'll, we'll talk about it later, but just kind of book in this because this leads into your incident, your shooting. Um, 
did with Rayful Edmonds, did one of the reasons he cooperate was simply because he saw what he was looking at. I mean, this dude is going to be doing life, life and life, right? I mean, he is, yeah. they're going to pump sunshine to this guy. Rule 35, right? He, he cooperates. He wants to cooperate. Was that the reason he decided to cooperate with you or was there other reasons? No, the other, uh, was basically to save his mother. Um, his mother was rolled up in that and then they cut a deal that they um, would not bring uh, additional charges or is severe charges on his mother. And so that's pretty love of that's mother. That's significant leverage. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, the other thing is too, is this look, and, and this goes back to cooperation and, and what we do in law enforcement, right? Whether you're a criminal, unless you're a sociopath, you know, some type of behavioral based crime, sex offender, something like that. Right. But, you know, they, they have, they have a mission. In Rafel's case, it's making tons of money, flaunting cash, whatever, and and you know running a drug empire. I, I think a lot of us, you know, uh, who worked in law enforcement, always you know scratch our head and say, you know what? Whether it's a fraud guy, whether it's a drug dealer, these guys could be the CEOs of major corporations if they put their mind to it and you know did legitimate business as opposed to illegal illicit business, right? I mean, Rafe Wedman probably on the scale, if you gave him some type of aptitude test, I mean, he's probably he's probably on the brilliance level. You know, at least, you know, it doesn't have an MBA, but like his business sense is probably like phenomenal. And you could probably put his mind up against, you know, a lot of, you know, top business leaders in the country. But they choose, you know, I think free will, you, you choose the side of evil over good, you know? Their business model is you do what I tell you, or I kill you, or I torture you, or I'll kill somebody in your family. So, you know, you got to get around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. But I mean, but I'm just saying purely, like, if they put their mind to, they have the ability, right, to, they could be successful in legitimate ends if they wanted to. That's that's the point I'm making. Yeah, I mean, their, their business models, you know, evil right but yeah but 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 they have the ability you know if they did it if it's that business acumen they they i mean if, if you're, you're talking about yeah they, they take over an entire country basically an entire region and your point too is if they could apply that same business acumen the business skills but that's that's the point is then you go back to is it nature is it nurture is it you know could they have made different decisions um you but choose at the, the end forces of, the day, of evil over good, you know? I mean, that's basically what separates the criminal from, you know, the rest of us, right? They they choose, you know, evil, the darkness of evil or, you know, the, the, the allure of evil over, over good. And I think that's really what you deal with day in, day out in law enforcement. But I, it just always fascinated me, you know what I mean? Because this guy was just – how the, the one interesting thing that came out of that, and, and you could go like Biography Channel I think did some kind of story. And they, they if you go to biography.com, I was reading about it years later, and um, they, they, they say, oh, you know, there was this the, – the U.S. Attorney's Office or the prosecutors um, had to get some translator, some special translator to translate this special – uh, pig Latin code that Rafe Wedman was using on the phones. There's no special translator. I'm going to, I don't look, you know, pride is the root of all sin. Right. But, but I will take credit for this. That special translator talking about is John Kofta. Okay. <laughs> I want, okay. I went to, I went to a city high school. It was, 
you know, it was, it, we were bussed across the city. It was, it was a racially mixed high school. And, um, uh, I come on to the, this is, you know, I graduated in 1981. So I, I, I come on to the wiretap in 1992 and I think it was Aaron McGee and Rich Klein, the late Rich Klein, who again was another bureau legend, you know, they're scratching their head and they're like, we don't know what happened. They started talking this, this special language and we can't, figure out it's like some kind of big latin or something you know and so okay you know so i I get on and i start you know it's the old reel-to-reel tapes right the old days you know uh the old magnetic tape and i I start listening and we used to dub everything onto a cassette tape and you made like multiple copies one was the evans copy i start listening and i'm like this is what they're saying they're speaking double dutch right so when i went to high school uh my senior year in high school Everybody spoke this language. It was like a, a slang, like an inner city kind of slang language, you know, probably Give emanated. Give an example. From, you'd put an I-Z-Z after like the first letter, first syllable. But you could – once you did that, you had to talk like um, Missouri. You know what I mean? It would be Murphy. You know what I mean? It wasn't anything complicated. But when you're talking real fast and you're spitting out and you're really good at it, you know, in – I mean, we just used to goof around and talk like this in, in high school. And it was like something was picked up. And there was actually a – back then it was rap music before there was hip-hop. There was a guy – I think it was a Philadelphia artist, Frankie some Frankie Smith or something like that. But he came out with this hit song. It was like the top song on the, on the R&B charts back then. It was called the Double Dutch Bus. And he would talk double Dutch through this whole – I mean he would sing double Dutch through this whole song. And the funny thing is this – I'll go way forward now. 2008 – it's like uh, my kids are, are, you know, watching the Disney Channel, and I think remember there's some TV show that's so Raven or something, but Raven, Ra- the girl that was the DC, the, the Disney star, some she re-releases that song, all right, and I'm I'm like, what the heck, you know? It's like my mind goes back to like Rafe Wedman, the Wiretap, Double Dutch, you know what I mean? This this. Oh, this this translated secret code. It wasn't anything. I mean, it was just it was just double dutch. Boys, boys we're baffled. We've got the best minds in on it. Our cryptographers and uh, it's called what? All you had to do is bring Snoop Dogg in. He goes, "Yeah, I can translate this full shizzle." That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but the beauty the beauty of it is is like and you know you're you're in law enforcement. It's, it's you, know, you have fun with it. But like we had like a whole board of like Rafe Wedman isms, like his different quotes and stuff like that. It was just hilarious. And until this day, like we run into. You know, you're long retired and you, you see people in the squad or you talk to people that you used to work with. And we start all talking this double Dutch amongst each other. You know what I mean? We're, we're, you know, at work and it just became like the squad talk that we started talking the way that Rayful was talking on the wiretap, this, this secret code that. He's converting you, know. you guys over. <laughs> <laughs> secret code. We did this in high school. Yes. Yeah. If- yeah. The CIA is baffled. The NSA can't figure this out. John Kufka. Oh, yeah, I got this. You know, yeah. talk, talk to any kid that went to John A. Brashear High School back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they'll tell you, you know what I mean? Just... How did you pronounce Murphy's name? What was it called? Missouri. 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 Yeah, it's That's like going to be like your new name. Missouri. Missouri. You, you, you carry on a whole conversation like that, you know, and it just, it just, and then, you know, it just, I don't know. It that's it, all it was. You know what I mean? It was just and it was funny like looking, you know, cuz you used to do like, you know, you do the old logs almost like on an Excel spreadsheet but you'd write it in, you know, handwriting like the agents are like kind of writing in a, you know, what it is and it was all double dutch. 
So now, so, Morgan, when when you call me that and I don't answer, you'll know why. Yeah, Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so I I can just imagine real quick. I can just imagine because you know when you're in court and you're going to testify about something, they have to lay foundation. So I can just see this going in. So. Agent Kufka, let's talk. Let's lay the foundation. <laughs> you went to this high school. You are an expert in double Dutch. Your Honor, I'd like to voir dire the witness. You know, I can just see them <laughs> laying the foundation to establish you as an expert. Luckily, Rachel pled, and it never got that far. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. And then he, I think he ended up testifying against co-conspirators, so he could, if it ever came up, he could. I don't he think anybody wants to know that. Yeah. yeah. What right. was, uh, and I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, but I wanted to ask you, what was his sentence in Rafel 2? I'd have to look that up because I was off the squad. I got off the squad and then got to the the other squad. But um, uh, I did look it up. It's 30 years. 30 years. Okay. And then he got a Pennsylvania hit too. He got hit in Pennsylvania also. I think he got, oh, I didn't see that. He got nailed down in DC and then he also got, or maybe they did like a global type settlement, but there's still the Pennsylvania middle district of Pennsylvania. Cause Lewisburg was over the line in a different district. So that's the one that's still holding him from, from him getting out. But I mean, was Rayful, he tied to any murders directly? They, well, not directly. So indirectly the group was tied they say to 30 murders but again he solved a lot of closed homicides afterwards i mean they they just debriefed him and debriefed him and he laid out and he set everybody up on the outside and and just really i mean you know overall look i i believe in redemption and i believe you know uh sinners can be saved and you know i you know i mean it it certainly was the root cause of the violent crime and all the murders and, you know, but, um, so what happened in, what happened in 2021? As far as, as well, what's holding it up is they, they, they can't, the, I think the judge was judge Sullivan up in DC. What I've been kind of following a little bit because is, uh, judge Sullivan put out a, uh, they almost did like a – it was like a never-before-done like study. Like they went out and they talked to people in D.C. and they – you know, the, the effects and what the temperature was of giving him a – because he had caused so much destruction. You know, he was the root cause of so much destruction in, in that city during that, you know, late 80s time period of bringing crack in. Um, you know, I think they – you know, they almost like did polls and they interviewed victims and things like that. And uh, I think they ended up giving him they, – they cut his sentence – way down that he should be able to get out but the thing that they're still what my understanding is it's still the middle district of pennsylvania still has that conviction up there too i think that's the 30 year i could be wrong on that but i'm that's pretty sure that's, that's the research i saw this what i saw as well and here's and so here's the whole point this guy his first rifle one was sentenced to two life sentences, sentences. without yeah. parole plus additional years for other crimes that he committed and then he goes into prison and continues to to deal death and drugs to the streets of D.C., where the murder rate is out of control, our nation's capital. And here we are in 2021. Oh, we're going to give him credit for time served on those two life sentences without frickin' parole. And you know as well as I do, John, that when they issue the judgment committal order, once he's sentenced, it has on their date of release. And it's what what is filled in there is upon death. Now, here's this guy that's responsible for, or, you know, his organization is responsible for as many as 30 murders, you know, unbelievably increased the death rate uh, to innocent citizens in the metro D.C. area. And how many babies were born in, in premature because their mothers were addicted to crack? Yeah. I now mean, uh, now we're know. looking at letting this man walk out. Pennsylvania, hang in there. Don't let him out. 
you know, he earned this. He deserves everything he got. Did he help solve some murders? Yeah, but that was the right thing to do. That doesn't absolve him of everything else he's done. I, this shit. Well, look, and his mom got a deal out of it, too. So the question is on the scales of justice, you know, how does that balance out? Uh, again, it's one of those things, you know, for us folks, you know, in the field, those decisions are always taken out of our hands. We might get a little bit of input, but so let us let us kind of now start setting the stage, because what I want to do is you've laid out a ton of great groundwork, a lot of history about what's going on in D.C. We understand how violent it is, because really your story is really nothing more than just extreme violence. Um, so let's but but before we get there, we had a quick discussion on a break before we came back on. And there is another case. He's going to introduce us to the case agent, uh, Brad Garrett. But the, in 1993, there was a shooting in front of CIA headquarters. Uh, two employees were killed. Three were wounded. And the guy they tracked down, uh, they tracked down. Uh, I don't want to give this guy any airtime. So we said his name during the break. I'm not going to give him any airtime here. But they tracked this guy all the way to Pakistan, finally found him. He's brought back. Uh Spoiler alert: This guy's executed in 2002. He is now room temperature, uh, but they did they did erect a shrine to his name uh, in uh, Pakistan in one of the tribal areas out there. But, Fata, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, let's talk about that real quick because you, it, I did I just threw that out there. Said, do you happen to know this guy? And then you blew me away by telling me what. So. <laughs> I was on my daily commute into Washington, D.C., down the uh, George Washington. Uh, before I got to George, I used to go down Georgetown Pike on the way in. I'd pass CIA headquarters. And that particular morning, there was, you know, I was the first FBI agent that rolled up on that scene after the shooting had happened. And um, uh, just, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when, when we're in this job, you're like kind of at the crossroads of history. You know what I mean? You don't look – you know, I could tell all kinds of, you know, how I've been connected to big cases, not that I worked them or anything. It's just you just happen to be in the right place at the right time at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, yeah, I mean, so I was just coming into work that day, and, and that's when, you know, the shooting had occurred. I mean, there was, you know, bodies outside of cars, you know, Fairfax police were driving. How did you hear about it? Did think. Did, they, did you have a radio in your car too? I mean, were you monitoring the local channel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, yeah. I was monitoring. You, you always monitored the. You know, we had a. I, I had a handheld MPD radio. We had the Fairfax County channel, um, which I used to drive through, and then and then you had the, uh, um, you know, and then you had the bureau radio. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, I, I I called out. You know what was going on, and and how uh, close were you to the scene when the initial reports came out? I mean. I mean, I was, I was probably, you know, it was, it was literally, they hadn't had the road closed on yet. You know what I mean? I, I pulled right in and, you know, police cars were just coming, you know. Hey, did you, you didn't hear any gunshots, did you? No, 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 no. I was just sitting in traffic. I was probably back in, you know, listening to like the Howard Stern show or something on my way in. <laughs> That's not yeah. educational. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, you know, I, I got so sick of Howard Stern. He like went so far over the top. You know, what I mean, Howard Stern was like, Howard Stern was like, I, I, I look at like, you know, it's like a bowl of chicken soup, right? Yeah, it tastes good, but then you drop a turd in it, it's like you're not going to eat that, you know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> it um, ruins the whole thing. It has all that, yeah. I mean, so I, I started listening to like books on tape, and I actually did get educated. I, I used to like listen to, you know, books on tape on the, on my long hour and fifteen hour and a half commute, depending on traffic, every day. Well, let's let's just kind of close out. I don't want to give too much away because we want to get Brad on. But but how long? But again, you weren't the case agent assigned, but you're the first one on the scene. Just give us a general 
look, have us look through your eyes. What are you seeing while you're there? Carnage. I mean, it's, it's carnage. It's, I remember, you know, car, it was like in the turning lane, you know, car door open. I mean, there was, it was just, it, it was, you know, it, it was carnage. You know, I think he used an AK 47 probably. Um, um, Actually, you know, a, a real good friend of mine, he's my, my son's godfather. He was a Fairfax County police, ended up becoming a police officer. And uh, um, he ended up, he was a Fairfax County police officer, ended up becoming an FBI agent, Jim Lewis. Jim Lewis actually got the call, I think, later that day. I didn't even know Jim Lewis at that time. You know, later, you know, we, we met and stuff, but, um, and became friends ever since then. And, uh, he, Jim Lewis actually showed up at Miramal Conzi's apartment. Um, they sent him by himself, knock on the door, like after the show. Yeah. Right. Thank God. Holy you know, cow. Jim, yeah. Hey, Jim, thank God you're alive. He wasn't there, but I mean. Well, but that's where they found the AK 47 tied the ballistics to it that identified him. But by that time he had, uh, scooted over to Pakistan. So let's just kind of, we'll wrap that up. Like I said, we don't want to give away a, a whole lot because we'd love to get Brad. And hey, look, um, you know, e even Jim, I mean, that would be just, these are cases, like you say, you may, you may not work all the big cases, but but when you have an intersection with them, when you have a little piece of it, it's like, th these are stuff that live with you. So that was a major case. The fact that they're able to track this guy down, find him, get him back. Um, uh, just it's a testament to the I, I mean we all good-naturedly kid every when you're in the military you kid every branch when you're in law enforcement you kid every agency but i will tell you just just from one you know cop to another what a tremendous piece of work by the fbi to find this guy to work collaboratively because as you said there's a dea element involved in this over in pakistan to find Huge this guy DEA element. it was it was dea sources it was dea agents in pakistan the overseas attache dea work and sources over there that identified his location and and you know i mean there's a lot but, of but at the end of the day yeah it doesn't matter what color your uniform is everybody bleeds blue so it's at the end of the day you want to find this sob get him back so what it, but we'll save that because but anyway just it's like those things you you have touch points so but let's let's start let's start setting the context for your incident because it involves a shooting it involves a a significant shooting um, in Washington DC at, at at the police station so let's start setting the context for what the time uh, you know what was going on in DC at the time what squad you were on and and, and the building why'd you happen to be in there so let's start getting into the context so again, murder rate's out of control. I'm sitting on wiretaps. I'm just one little small piece of a, of a big investigation worked by others. And I, I honestly, I, I, I was, I wanted to get out and run my own cases and I wanted to, you know, be on a more, the, the Rafe Edmund case, Rafe Edmund two and Lewisburg was going on. And that was more of a macro, you know, view of, of the drug world and stuff. And, and I wanted the more micro, I wanted on the streets, you know, jumping out, you know, being more like, you know, quick hits and single hitters, I guess, um, taking out people and getting that. No. Okay. But anyhow, so they, they started, let me go back. So they started the major gang and crime task force. I raised my hand. I got off of squad C6 and I went to squad 20, C21 there. Uh, Mike Miller, who was a uh, veteran agent at Duntam and headquarters was from the Washington DC area. He had um, left headquarters and came back to, you know, his home of Washington field office, second office, second or third office agent, experienced, you know, agent. He was on that. Um, then Martha Dixon, uh, that's where I met her. She was second office agent, first female SWAT agent. She was out of Knoxville division, 
again, fellow Pittsburgher. Uh, so we hit it off right away and she was, um, uh, got the Washington field because, you know, that's only four hours away from Pittsburgh and she was trying to get Pittsburgh OP was like impossible to get. Like I'll tell you another story. I'm probably 17 years in the bureau at this point. I'm like down in, uh, Fort Myers RA it's February Fort Myers resident agency out of Tampa division. I'm, I'm walking to federal court. I get a call from the SAC. Hey, John got news for you, but I think we know what your answer is. Um, you know, it's like 70 degrees out. It's beautiful. I'm going to, to testify in, in, a, in a case and, and uh, you know, sunny skies, blue skies in Florida in the middle of winter. And an and, opening uh, in Alaska came up. No, <laughs> you have you have your 17 years later. You got your OP to Pittsburgh. And um, I'm like, do you want it? I'm like, I'm good. I'm, a, I'm good, man. I'm good, bro. I'm good, yeah. I'm good. So, so anyway. 70 degree weather for snowstorms, ice storms, below zero temperatures. But you could have gone to a Steelers game, waved your terrible towel, and freezing your cojones off. You didn't want to go back to drinking Iron City beer again? Come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. No thanks. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, um, so, so, you know, but it was impossible to get to Pittsburgh. I mean, so Martha, you know, she she transferred, you know, out of Knoxville Division to Washington to get even closer to uh, to get to Pittsburgh to be, you know, close to family and, and friends and things like that. But that's that's how it was. So we got on this violent crime task force. It was, you know, typical, you know, throw bodies at the problem, and it wasn't real well organized. And and um, you know, we were partnered up with a detective, and but it was. You know, we were out doing search warrants, and they kind of flooded the zone in southeast D.C. where the majority of homicides were working. And we were, you know, working alongside the 7th District uh, police. And, I mean, it was, it was wild. I mean, it was just, you know, eye-opener, the, the stuff you see. You know, the, the level of depravity that was, was going on. You know, I mean, I, I could tell you stories, you know, where, you know, we had one guy, uh, my detective partner and I arrested on on a shooting, you know, it was just the guy he shot just happened to be happened to just move in and start renting an apartment where um uh you know this big drug dealer had been staying and had moved out and so these kids uh i say kids are in their 20s but they they uh um you know didn't realize the drug dealer moved out and they go in to do a home invasion and they put the, the guy down on the floor after he comes back from, you know, watching a Redskins game with his mom on TV and his buddy and put him down on the floor and hit him in the head with a 38. And luckily, and I interviewed the guy in the hospital. I'll never forget. I mean, he, and afterwards, like he had a, he played dead. It, it didn't pierce the skull the way they shot it. And it just like skated down his, down his hairline and down his head. And so he had a scar there, like where hair would never grow, but he, but he lived. But I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. And, you know, we were kind of in the thick of it, taking cases, not in the federal system, but in, in DC superior court, which is still a federal court, but it's like, you know, DC is a special jurisdiction because it's a nation of capital. So your murders, robberies, that kind of stuff happens in superior court as opposed to federal court, which is like your big federal crimes. And, um, you know, so that was an intro. So we, we worked together, we were out together, you know, we built a close bond, Martha, Mike and I, and, um, you know, Mike was, just to give you a little background. I mean, he, salt of the earth, family man, devoted family man, uh, to, uh, both of his, I remember, you know, seeing his kids' pictures on his, I can still envision it today, like on, on his desk back then, you know, little kids, he was a soccer coach and he was always, um, 
you know, always had the, like the team soccer photo up on, you know, coach soccer and he was really big into it and big into his family's life. And, you know, he's kind of really a role model. And, and I ended up, you know, raised my hand, knew nothing about soccer, but like when my daughter and, and son, you know, got older or, you know, start playing soccer, I started coaching and stuff. And I just thought about, you know, Mike, you know I mean? Like what a great, great influence as a person, as a human being, you know? And um, yeah, Martha, I mean, <laughs> You know, that you couldn't find a kinder person in this world, you know, maybe my wife, right? But, but I mean, uh, you know, than, than Martha, I mean, she was just, just good, infectious, um, positive attitude, um, you know, irrespective of how bad things seemed, you know, I mean, just always good. And, and you know, you, 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 you know, as a young pup, really, I, I didn't have any experience, you know what I mean? And, and they were senior veteran agents at this point. And I, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd take their lead, but we would, you know, be teamed up with a detective and go out and make cases. And I remember like one case, just going back to the, to the city. And I'll, I'll tell you another anecdotal story. I remember a prosecutor, telling a story like she's interviewing you know witnesses for a trial and these young kids and and they i say kids you know in their 20s but um gang related drug activity and and um you know she uh she says something like you know uh, uh thou shalt not kill you know the 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 ten in, in the ten commandments and and the kids respond the one witness respond, well, what's that you know what's the ten commandments right and um and I think it was a telling thing that, like, look, the basis of our Judeo-Christian civilization, right, that the basis of our legal system, you know, wasn't reaching parts of inner city Washington, D.C., and parts of, you know, probably other big cities in this country. You know, that, that, that a kid who's in his early 20s doesn't have any concept that there is a thing, thou shalt not kill in, in the Ten Commandments, you know. And I remember one guy we arrested, Charlie Beard. And I, who's my detective partner at that time, on that major crime and gang task force, when we arrested him, he had a he had a, a necklace with a nine millimeter bullet was his um, necklace. You know, some people wear a cross or a star of David or some type of religious symbol. This guy, Saint Michael. Yeah, this guy. This guy's wearing a, a nine millimeter bullet. Is his is his. Um, you know, God, I guess. But I mean, that, that really, I, I think that speaks a lot to like how things were, how things are, you know, what the problem is, you know, in, in our society and, and why we have this, you know, you want to look at, you know, root causes. I mean, I think that's where you break down the family. I mean, every one of these guys you arrest through the years, you know, they're, they're single parents or non-existent parent, or even if they have two parents or, you know, parents don't have any role in their life, you know what I mean? And so there's no nurturing, there's no, you know, and, but I, I mean, I, I'm not saying, look, I think we need to focus again we're not doing it now, but we need to focus on the consequences of crime and, and not on, you know, the causes because, uh, you know, it's 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 going to sink the country if, if we don't get a hold of it again. And this time, I think it's even what's welling up in this country is a lot more dangerous. But again, so I'm on this major crime task force. It, it, after about six months or so, it, it dissolves and they, they push us all over to – we're on the same squad, same FBI supervisor, but they push us over to – um, the cold case task force, which had been also run. There's two task forces running on this, on C21, the old C21 squad at Washington field office. There was a cold case squad. And then there was the major crime task force, major crime task force kind of goes away for whatever reasons. And then they put us on C21. I'm like, Hey, I'm three years in the bureau. I just hit the lottery. 
I'm going to get to work with the, the cold case squad was uh, veteran FBI agents with, with violent crime, you know, knowledge and background and years of working. A lot of guys from the bank robbery squad came over there and there was, there was that group it teamed up with DC veteran DC homicide detectives from the different districts of within DC, and the the goal of this was to uh, investigate drug related homicides of over a year old, and why over a year old drug or gang related homicides over a year old, and the whole thinking of that cold case squad was. One, it's a federal city, so you can have the federal involvement. D.C. was being overwhelmed with shootings. And and, um, and one other stat let me throw out to you. Uh, you know, 90 we'll, – we'll fast forward to 93, 94, right? There's, there's – um, broke the record in 90 – or 91, I think, when I got out of the academy of 482 homicides. There was – I remember the police chief when they did this inauguration when we go over to work on C-21 – the D.C. police chief, you know, gave a little speech and he says, you know, there was that year there was 2,500 assault with intent to kill or assault with a deadly weapon in, in just in D.C. And D.C. had been losing its population up to that because people were moving. If you could afford to get out, you got out of D.C., right? And um, the 2,500 ADWs are AWICs, right? And like he said, but for the fact that there's advances in modern science um, – or trauma care or the fact, things like that yeah or the bad guys couldn't shoot straight that would be 2500 homicides think about that number add 2500 homicides on top of you know the the 482 in 1991 or the 703 in the surrounding metropolitan area prince george's county and montgomery county and the the counties surrounding dc it's just it, it, it's a war zone. It, it was a war zone. There, there's no way to describe it as anything else. No one felt safe, no matter what part of the city you were in. If you're in a business district, stuff was kicking off everywhere, and um, that's kind of the backdrop of of where we were. So I get on C21 now, and I'm on C21, but I get moved over to this other task force, and it's the homi- the cold case homicide. Thing. And, and why, again, why we did the cold cases is, you know, witnesses after a year, the thinking was, well, you know, maybe, you know, the person that was the shooter or maybe the person that would otherwise retaliate against you is now in jail on some unrelated charge and you're more likely to talk. The fact that DC homicide detectives, the bodies were stacking up, literally, the bodies were just stacking up one on another. They didn't have time to investigate. You'd, you'd pull some of these case files, and there's a couple interviews done, and then they'd have to move on to the other because they respond to the three, four homicides a night during this period, you know, and, and they're, you know, they're getting pulled all different directions. So, you know, that was the goal was to go back, identify this most violent, if any of the most violent persons that was, you know, Holder's idea is a U.S. attorney, get the most violent persons. Uh, if they're on this list, go after them. If they were, um, you, you know, if they were somebody that was flagged as, you know, you know, if you could take somebody off the street that was responsible for 30 homicides, right? You might not be able to prove 30 homicides, but if you could prove one on them, that's going to reduce crime and, and be a crime reduction model. And that's really, and I think that's really what reduced the crime in the city. Uh, you know, it, it was the sentencing guidelines, the, the picking people off, any way we could so you know you had squad c6 doing the uh, that rafe wedman and, and and doing the 
enterprise case. You had other squads doing other type of specific gang cases. And then there was us who were going back on more of a micro level, so to speak, you know, not the macro level of, of investigating single homicides. And for me, man, I was a sponge. I mean, I, this was a chance to work with like DC homicide detectives. And these guys literally were like artists painting with a brush, you know, the way they conducted interviews, the way they, the way they, um, maintained themselves. I mean, they could get the most hardcore cold gangbanger, you know, in a room and, and talk with respect and, and just, you know, build rapport with them and, and, then you know, get them, you know, down the line to either make admissions or confess and the way they, they got witnesses to talk to them. I mean, it's just, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And I, I look back at, I probably that, my role, the, the thing I enjoyed the most in the FBI throughout my entire 27 career was doing the subject interview, right? And I would be brought in on other people's cases sometimes, you know, to be the person that, you know, interviews the subject. Because, I mean, I, I developed a good skill at it and I got a lot of confessions in my in my career. But I, I go back to my time, that short time on on the cold case squad. Well, you know, I've been to interview and interrogation school and the FBI school and the read method and all that stuff, you know, but I mean, I really learned such a lot at a formative time in my early career from these DC homicide detectives. And these guys were legends. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's just a, it was, um, there was, there was so many, you know, things that you just got involved in, or you got to sit in unrelated cases, but they would work. They, you know, back, they had a videoed up interrogation, well, it, interview interview room you know and you know one would step one detective would step out and then you'd jump in and you'd you know i mean you'd keep that flow going and and i just it was it was just a a great time hey, let me ask a question here real quick too because there's an interesting jurisdictional question here because in the federal statutes i mean back at that time there was no federal statute for just like a murder you, you, the fbi had no authority to make arrests and investigate murders but dc being a special district so when it came to charging, you'd get somebody on this. What, even though you guys would help make the case, did that all get charged through then uh, the DC Metropolitan Police through their court system, or how much of that could you take federal? Yeah, that was wild. I mean, we we papered cases in the DC system. We you you learned you did the like PD one twenty threes. I think they were called their their form, like their report of investigation. You know, everything was recorded, or you did a you you typed it. You know, like their their statements were like, you know. What did you see next? You have to, you know, put it in and then what their exact answer was. I mean, it, you, you did everything on pretty much D.C. It was on D.C. paperwork and everything went through D.C. Superior Court. Um, but, you know, you testified as a, a witness or you, you know, you, you, you know, you would uh, your detective partner would um, help you paper that case or you would, you know, just jointly put that thing together. The case file and present it to the U.S. attorney or to, well, they were U.S. attorneys in superior court but they were you know what i mean but they were they were superior court and attorneys doing it in the states can you explain what you mean when you say paper a case yeah i mean paper in a case was like the the instead of like in the federal system you know you do a complaint and then you know an indictment and and uh you know you do discovery i mean dc is almost it, is a police department and they have a whole set of separate in different forms that have grown up through their court system and, and through their department. And, and basically that's, you know, what you, you know, there's certain things, and I don't recall everything now, but I mean, there's certain, you know, 
things that you had to do before you presented that to a court and, and presented it to the attorneys, to the prosecutor's office to, to um, you know, file that charge. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including if you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released part one, episode one of the real DEA Narcos talking about the real DEA Narcos, Cali edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell go in-depth 16 hours about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.